This is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 10, the final episode of Season 2, Human Things Podcast. A little, little behind-the-scenes knowledge for you. Almost every episode that we film, once I do that little intro at the beginning and tell us that we're getting going, I sing to myself the circus Afro song from, uh, what is it? Uh, what was the name of those movies? Chris Rock is the zebra. I know it's going to come to me. Uh, Madagascar. Um, Madagascar movie. Yes, that's right. It's Madagascar two, isn't it? With the circus Afro, that, that, that little circus. Afro. Yeah. So I sing that to myself every time, sometimes out loud, sometimes just in my head, most of the time out loud, usually out loud. Uh, speaking of singing, uh, we're going to have a short intro. We're going to have a guest today, Jim Trotty, uh, licensed counselor, works with young people. We're going to be talking about despair. What I've asked him to do uh, was to, and we've already filmed that, as we've talked about before. We filmed that first. And so it's a long conversation, a broad-reaching conversation about the, what the, the roots of despair might be, particularly in the young people that he works with. And it's, I would say, it's surprisingly practical. I think I, I mentioned at the end of the interview that I came into this thinking that we were going to have a, a conversation about the dissolution of society. And we did basically about why despair has grown in our culture, the way that it has. Uh, and, and we did, but what happened was from his point of view, from somebody who works with young people every day who are struggling with despair, the roots of despair, despair are very practical. Uh, and, and I, I think you'll, hopefully you'll enjoy that conversation because it was surprising to me. It was enlightening to me. Uh, talking to somebody who's both a brother in Christ, but who has spent his professional life talking to people, particularly young people in our community that are struggling. And I valued it. I'm grateful for the time. So that's why I want to keep the intro a little short because I want you all to be able to enjoy all of that and not worry about time. Um, I said, speaking of singing, not just me singing Circus Afro, I just want to say this. This is just a complete, I'm trying to think of great vocal performances and songs. Uh, I, I became distracted by this recently because my daughter and I, my youngest daughter, I drive my daughter around a lot uh, to lacrosse and to other things. So when I'm when I'm in town, I drive her around and I love it, love it. And, and we, with all of my kids, I like to listen to their music. They listen to mine with my older daughter, MJ. We have like, sometime when we took a road trip together, she drove to an event with me. We did a yours and mine thing. She played one of hers, I played one of mine. Usually what happened is she would play one of hers and then I would play the, the thing that I felt like inspired her. I was like, okay, you like that. This is, or, or her music. And I was like, this is, I think the inspiration for that. Um, and yeah, interestingly, first let's get to this. I want to mention that too, before we go uh, to Jim Trotty. First of all, songs, great vocal performances. I'm trying to think of something better than I think of Roy Orbison's crying because I'd played crying for, my daughter. And if you haven't listened to it ever, or if you haven't listened to it in a while, you need to just go back and listen to Roy Orbison singing the song crying. It's ridiculous. I mean, I love, I actually love, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones I do blue Bayou by Linda Ronstadt. I think is a really nice vocal performance, but I mean, Roy Orbison's crying is just, it's just ridiculously good singing on every level ending with just some, I mean, just so so if you have strong opinions about a better vocal performance on a contemporary rock classic or something like that, go, go ahead and let me know, email me, whatever you want to do. Uh, if don't show me a picture of Taylor Swift, how dare you? How dare you? Oh my gosh. It's just that, that that's embarrassing for everyone. 
Roy, but so Roy Orbison, I'm putting Roy Orbison crying right now at my peak. I'm gonna I'm gonna think on this, and if you have somebody else, you go ahead and give it to me. And, and, and I look, I go against a broad range of different music. I think um, uh, Chris Cornell's got a great voice, and there's stuff that he did that I really loved. Uh, yeah, I th- I, so I'm trying to think, but man, just I listened to that, and I listened twice. That was I listened to once. I was like, this can't be as good as it sounds. So I listened to it again, turned it up, and just listening to Roy Orbison's handling that song from the beginning to the end, the build, the the power behind his voice, the control, everything about it. Crying is just outrageously good singing, uh, even better than I think like Blue Bayou, which I love a lot. I like Lynn Ronstadt's Blue Bayou. So, uh, so I'm gonna think. I'm gonna try to think who does a better vocal performance than that i mean i know there's vocal stylists that do really interesting songs i'm looking for pure power good traditional voice love it give me if you got something better bring it on i want to know i want to know i want to know what you think is better than crying by roy orbison uh moving on from that this is something i would like to touch on really quickly uh i i kind of hit it earlier when I said the, the, when my wife, my daughter and I would be driving and I would say, one of yours, one of mine. And oftentimes the one that I tried to play was something that I thought inspired your work. I follow in, a lot of Instagram accounts. I follow, I follow some weird stuff, but one of the things I've gotten into follow, following are these band, these people doing interviews with band members. And so I hear interviews with Dave Grohl or hearing them with these different guys. Uh, was here an interview with some of the guys from Soundgarden. And what's interesting to me is that musicians are not snobby about music. But, but their fans are. And what I mean by that is, they're, yeah, they're saying you're not. One of the funniest memes out there was a picture of this is what Metallica fans look like. And it showed all these Metallica fans wearing their gear and all their hair and their, and their shirts. And then this is what Metallica looks like. And it was members of Metallica walking around with their families. And just they look like normal human beings, like completely normal people. Uh, nothing like the fierce commitment to this style that their fans often have. And I've noticed this. I have friends that are, that are passionate fans of some type of music and they're so ugly about other styles. And at the same time I saw Dave Grohl and he was doing an interview about uh, his, with Pharrell about his lead in drums on Nirvana, but particularly he was talking about smells like teen spirit, but he said all through uh, never mind. He said the, the the drum rhythm that he's playing, he borrowed and took from funk and disco. D- funk and disco. He's playing a funk disco ba- beat. Nirvana fans hate disco, right? If I ever talked to him, they, they would. But here is Dave Grohl, actual member of Nirvana, talking about that. I was listening to Soundgarden, and they were discussing different influences, and one of the guys said that the lead singer of Soundgarden loved the Carpenters and that the Carpenters were a vocal influence on him. And so there were elements of how he was approaching music where he was thinking through this love of the car. This guy was talking about taking some of the guitar riffs that he'd written and the things that he was writing for the band and how he got inspiration from ragtime. And so you listen to these, the people that are composing and making the music, writing these songs, some of these, like the greatest rock songs ever written. And the influences that they've taken from are so varied and so interesting. And, and they, they have none of the music, musical snobbery that their fans do. They, they will take inspiration from anywhere and everywhere, and they have a deeper appreciation of music than their fans ever have. By the way, you see this by the, as well in movies. I, I've understand that both Quentin Tarantino and Martin Scorsese are insane. They're, they're living uh, encyclopedias of movie knowledge. They said that there is... 
There is no line in a movie that you can't walk up to Martin Scorsese, tell him the line that he can't respond by telling you the movie, the actor and the role that they were playing in that, where that line was that he, he is just a walking encyclopedia, good, bad, everything. That guy knows every movie that's ever been made. He's just a huge, massive movie fan and similar things that you hear about Tarantino. So that's just, that's just an interesting little aside to me about how often the people who are actually making our culture are not the snobs that the people who are gatekeeping our culture are. So don't let musical snobs have their way. If they are ugly to you about some band that you like, and this comes up by the way, because I was in an online fight recently about Mariah Carey's song for Christmas, all I want for Christmas. And, and I don't show me Taylor Swift again. I'm not bashing people for liking Taylor Swift. I said very specifically, if you like her, that's fine. She's not my thing. Uh, but I understand. And I actually, I, you know, I actually defended Taylor Swift this week. Somebody was, was being ugly about her. And I said, look, I, I, I'm not a Taylor Swift fan, but her, her, reason for making her music all over again, I think is brilliant. I, I mean, I think that, that what she did was absolutely brilliant and it shows a desire to control her own music and her finances. Somebody else made a fortune off of what she made and the ownership of her music belonged to somebody that had no connection to her. And so she just re-released all of it and became a billionaire doing it. Hey, more power to you, man. You understood the system and you went out and took control of your music. I admire that. I'm just not a fan. That's all right. I don't care. I, I don't begrudge the people who are. She's just not my thing, man. But um, it was somebody was talking about Mariah Carey, and they got, I, I said, "Cue Mariah Carey," because we're starting on November first. By the time you hear this, we will be into the the month of November, and I will be listening happily to Christmas music with not not a care in the world for how anyone else feels or thinks about that. And one of the songs I will enjoy mightily during the Christmas season is All I Want for Christmas by Mariah Carey. I like that song. I can't get enough of it. And I get all these people yelling at me about how much they hate it and it's terrible and it's tacky or whatever, whatever your problem with it is. And here's been my message to people online. Because some of these people, I, I love you guys. I love you. Mariah Carey won. She conquered Christmas. It's over. You live in a conquered Christmas season. If you want to listen to, to, to that kind of secular Christmas music, then you live in a conquered land. Just act accordingly, right? Just, just control yourself. Realize she's one. She's the, it is the most popular, most sold contemporary Christmas music ever in history. It's the only Diamond Plus Christmas music ever released, Christmas record ever released. There are 11 different covers of it as of last year. I'm sure there's more coming out this year. She one, Mariah Carey has beaten you all. Like Nickelback did before, now Mariah Carey is victor. She has won, accepted. Nickelback is fine. They won. They're one of the most popular bands of their time period. They got everything, all the all the accolades for being, just because the internet tells you to hate Nickelback, don't you dare hate Nickelback. My favorite, by the way, defender of Nickelback, have you seen where Deadpool does in the Deadpool 2 Christmas edition where he defends Nickelback? It's beautiful, right? So I don't let the internet tell me what to like and to not like. I don't let anybody tell me what I should and shouldn't listen to. I like what I like, uh, and so should you. Because the gatekeepers, the music snobs, they're so much more snobbish than the people that actually produce the music. The people who are making the music, they're listening to everybody and taking inspiration from everybody and from weird places because they don't have anywhere near the, the, the compunction against listening to certain types of music that their so-called fans do. Uh, don't be a snob. Just listen. Like what you like. 
that, there's that. And, and here, we're going to talk a little bit about happy, a lot about happiness in the interview coming up with Jim Trotty. And we've also been talking about movie lines. Uh, I did want to talk about one of my favorite things I ever heard somebody say, because there's a movie line, there's a movie called, um, Cameron Crowe movie called We Bought a Zoo. And the story revolves around uh, Matt Damon has just lost his wife. He's trying to figure out how to deal with the world. He has a teenage son and a younger daughter. And then he buys a house that's on the grounds of an old zoo and decides to fix it up. Just how he's dealing with his grief. Uh, his, his teenage son has had to move away from everybody he knew and is struggling with all that. And there's this fight between the two of them where they're arguing about things. And he said, you know, I just, I moved here cause I just wanted you to be happy. Uh, and his son says, um, what's so great about being happy? And it's one of my favorite responses ever in a movie. Cause his dad just looks at him, Matt Damon and says that you're happy. And, and the reason I want to talk about this before we get into the interview with Trotty, uh, with Jim Trotty is because we're going to talk in the interview about the illegitimacy of being happy as a central goal in your life, that you shouldn't have a goal for you to be happy or for other the idea of saying that I just want you to be happy is just a terrible burden actually placed on somebody because you just can't be happy all the time. But before we do that, I wanted to make sure I touched base and said how much I like being happy. I do. I like being happy more than I like being sad. So happiness can't be the central preoccupation or goal of your life, but it's it that that line is great when he says, what's so great about being happy anyway? And his dad's response was just that you're happy. Because being happy is better than being sad. And it's better than being, there are times where it's more appropriate to be sad. There's times where sadness is the appropriate response. There's time when anger is the appropriate response. There's time to mourn. There's time for everything under the sun. But man, being happy is just a lovely state. And so I don't think that it should be the central preoccupation of our life. But in saying that, I also want to make sure I'm clear in saying that I prefer being happy. And there are times when I am deliriously happy. There are TV shows that I like to watch that I'll probably never admit how much I like to watch them. But my kids will tell you when they're on, dad just laughs so much. When I'm around people I love, I mean, people who, whose company I genuinely love and cherish, I laugh all the time. I just like being happy. And I think that there's, I just want to touch that before we get into a deeper conversation about proper goals, identity in our life, understanding who and what we are, emotional control, all these things that we're getting ready to talk about that in the, the efforts to talk about how happiness is not the goal. That doesn't mean that happiness is not wonderful. And by the way, one of my favorite things I ever heard anybody say was Dennis Prager was talking about, he had a, his happiness hour on his show where he just talks about happiness and the importance of happiness on his radio show. And a guy called in one day and he said during the happiness hour that he had held his daughter in his arms while she died, his young daughter. And he said, and I will never be happy again. And Dennis Prager said, this was long before Prager you, and he became a more politically polarizing figure to people who hate him but just a man who has some tremendous wisdom. And he said, sir, you will be happy again, but you will never experience happiness that isn't touched by that moment, which means that it won't be the same quality of happiness that you had before. 
That doesn't mean it'll be a lesser happiness. It just means it'll be a happiness that will forever be informed by that tragedy. That tragedy will be a lens through which new happiness is understood differently than it was before, but it will be happiness. And I want to encourage happiness as best I can. That's entirely, this is the whole reason why we have the beginning of the show where we talk about silly things. Because I, I say to a lot of people, I spend my time talking about very serious things. And most people probably think looking at me because I have a hostile resting face that I'm a very serious person, but I also enjoy not being serious sometimes. And so it, it's for me. Let's say that the beginning of this show where I talk about Mariah Carey, where I talk about Roy Orbison, where I talk about Hall and Oates, where I talk about Harry Potter, where I talk about star Wars, the beginning of this show is for me. It's for me to remember that it's okay for Jay to be happy. It's okay for Jay to talk about silly things. Not everything has to be serious. You just don't need me to be serious all the time. And if you do, I can't be that for you because that's not who I am. And that doesn't make me happy to be like that all the time. I like silly things and I like talking about incredibly morally important issues. And both of those things need to be reflected in this podcast. So I just wanted to talk about that before we get into the next section. But saying that, I'm about to welcome in my guest, Jim, Jim Trotty. The discussion we're about to get into is trying to understand the roots of despair. The reason we're going to be talking about that is because we live in a world where increasingly you see people either through drug abuse, opiate abuse, suicide rates, all of these things where people are just dealing with despair. And I wanted to talk to somebody who talked to people who are struggling with despair for a living and see if they can help us understand things better. And I feel like I understand things better after talking to him. I also feel like I have a better grasp on how we can hopefully help and also the limits of the help that we can offer. So I hope you enjoy this coming interview with Jim Trotty. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to welcome today to the podcast, Jim Trotty. Jim Trotty is here to talk, as we mentioned earlier, about um, despair in the culture. I asked him to come on, and I'm going to let him say in a moment what he does for a living with more in more depth, but he, he's a professional counselor, uh, and he works with young people. And the you know, obviously, my interest in the idea of despair in the culture goes beyond just young people, but it is most deeply felt by my kids and within their peer group as well. And you see so much of this in the world. I, th I think one of the things that's interesting that we'll get into to a second is that a friend of mine had written an article about a year ago talking about the rise or a little, maybe a couple of years ago now about the rise of Jordan Peterson. And, and that one of the things that, that they felt fueled the rise of Jordan Peterson was that there was a group of people that felt like they'd been given up on. Uh, they'd been abandoned. The people just didn't care. And all of a sudden this guy comes along and writes 12 steps to, live productively. I can't remember the name of his book, the 12 things that you can do to live productively, like make your bed. But, but what was that root of that? That they said was that his audience felt suddenly cared for. Uh, and so, and, and there had been recently a couple of articles that I'd read about the number of ODs going up. Things a hundred thousand last year alone is what they said now overdoses. And they called these oh, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, 
all of this stuff, diseases of despair, suicide, OD, all of that, deaths of despair. Uh, and so we have talked about this on a previous show. It was actually the second episode we ever did, and I had Jonathan Noyce from Standard Reason come in and talk about suicide because that is something that he focuses on. Uh, and he comes at it from a pastor's heart, from a minister's heart. Uh, and I wanted to revisit it again and bring something new to it because it's such a... Pro- it's just awful. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to think of a clever way to say it, but it's just a terrible thing to live in a world where so many people around you are struggling with despair. Uh, and so I thought I would call my friend Jim Trotty, who talks to professionally, talks to young people and has worked in this field with other people who are talking to different groups uh, and ask if he could offer us any insight into this concept, this idea of diseases of despair, deaths of despair, both from his professional background and as a Christian, uh, how we should be looking at this. So first of all, share with the audience a little bit about your background, about what you do, the, the why you, why did I call you? Yeah, so thank you, first of all, for having me on, and it's an honor to be here with you. Oh, absolutely. Especially on the happiest topic you could have brought <laughs> on, on Halloween. Everything we is talk that a coincidence? about. I'm not everything sure. we talk about on this show is is, is so serious, <laughs> which is as we were talking about in the parking lot earlier. Yeah. Which is weird because I'm not a serious person. Um, <laughs> all right, all right, yes. So Welcome. yeah, I've been a thank you. I've been a counselor now for 16 years. Uh, been in private practice in East Cobb uh, for East Cobb North Atlanta yep. uh, for 15 years. And uh, so I really, when I talk about this subject, I can only talk about it from my perspective um, and the perspective of the clients that I've worked with and, and that I've treated. Um, I looked into the subject a lot. I researched it a lot when, when you asked me to talk on it. Um, but at the end of the day, all I can really tell you is my perspective from the teenage guys that I treat. So yeah. that's, that's who I work with. I work with uh, teenage guys. And... Um, so I, I try to see the world from their perspective, but also offer them insight from my perspective uh, and how to, uh, I guess, live a healthier life. And you've, you've actually, over the years we've talked about too, there was, I can't remember the specifics, but there was also another area where you were doing a lot of research into as far as a treatment or a way of, of dealing with people who are struggling with, was it anxiety or what was it that we? It's called pseudo seizures. Yes. Uh, Used to be called a conversion disorder. Okay. Um, now it's called a functional neurological disorder, but it's it's in the realm of neurology. But it's it's essentially uh, people who have strange neurological symptoms like seizures, but there's no neurological storm, so there's no actually damage going on in the brain or the body, but they're having really weird symptoms that make people think that there's something really yeah. really wrong going on. All right, so that that was the and, and I feel like when you say you come at it from just your standpoint, that is also that's already more than most of us have, right? I mean, you've spent now the better part almost two decades working with people who are struggling, uh, and it brings some. And then, like you said, you're you're you you work with other people who work in a broader sense. So your your field of expertise is far beyond what the rest of us are dealing with. <laughs> We're talking about just having some sense of what's going on with people that are struggling in the world today. So I asked you to come on like all of my guests. I say, try to bring us three things, uh, three things to help us think this through, to, to approach this both intellectually as a Christian, and then we'll interact on it. What's, what's your first thing you got here for us? 
So the three things I have, let me just list them first, and then I'll talk on each right. one of them. Yep. But the three things that I have are um, are things that I don't see in our culture today. Okay. And the three things that I don't see as much of in our culture today is a foundation of family values. Uh, I don't see a lot of, number two, emotional control. And the third thing is a lot of depth, and especially depth in the thinking um, of our young people. And there's a there's a couple different reasons, a couple different things that I um, attribute that to. Okay. Uh, that I'll get into, but I guess I'll just start with the foundation of the family. You know what? In our culture, I see young people searching for identity. And I see young people searching for the other thing I hear that's kind of a buzzword is safe spaces. Okay. And when you say identity, you mean like a self-understanding? Yeah, who I am. Who I am and, and how I relate to the world around me. Right. Okay. And um, I feel like if you're, if you're not receiving your identity um, or, or the very first understanding of who you are uh, from your family of origin – it, you're going to look for that somewhere. Okay. And so we're looking, we're seeing that play out in our culture that young people are, are searching in all different kinds of areas to find their identity or of who they are. Um, and when they can't find that identity, a lot of them will turn to drugs, alcohol, um, things that give them immediate gratification and, and also acceptance for the other people who are doing those things. So let's go back. That's from foundation of it. So what would it look like? Tell us kind of the different kinds of failures of families being able to offer that foundation. Cause I mean, it's not, it's not obviously just absentee parents, but I mean, what, that's right. Or what, what, what are the different ways that this looks like when we as families fail to give our kids foundation so they can understand their identity and feel safe? Both those things you talked about, their needs. So part of giving a child a foundation is also giving them boundaries. Okay. And um, knowing, knowing, you know, teaching them how to live, but also what not to do. And uh, without those boundaries, uh, this is what I hear from parents a lot. They'll say things like, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to take my kid to church or, or tell him about God, I want him to figure that out on his own. Yeah. Or they'll say other things like, well, I know he's going to have sex anyways, or I know I know they're going to experiment with drugs anyways. We did at his age. Yeah. And so there's this, um, it's almost like they're, they're complicit in their kids' uh, degeneracy, yeah. For, yeah, for lack of a better word, is that, like, I did it, so, you know, I'll let them figure it out. And I think one thing that uh, I guess made a big impression on me growing up is that um, my parents had standards. You know, my dad was, my mom was a teacher. My, my dad was an army colonel. So, <laughs> so you had, you had standards. <laughs> I, had, I had nothing but standards and boundaries. Um, and I broke those standards and boundaries a lot, but I still had those to yes. fall back on. Yeah. At a reset point that I could say, okay, yeah, I screwed up. You know, I can start over from here. Yeah, that's um, an important point, right? I mean, it doesn't when they when we say they're going to fail anyway to live up to the highest standards. 
that whatever we set for them. But if you have no boundaries, there is no place to, like you said, there's no reset point. There's no, or there's no looking back and realizing where the line was and where I crossed it and what the problem was. I, I'm the opposite of you, by the way. I grew up with no boundaries. Like, okay. like I, I, and my life was a mess when I was, I was somebody that would have been sent to you when I was younger. I would, and, and I did. My family sent me to a lot of counselors when I was younger, but it's my did own. Did you like any of them? No. No. Um, yeah. I had one that I, you know, that he was, they all felt like I was messing with them. Like it was, it was a weird relationship that I had with the people yeah. that were trying to, that they felt like I was playing them all the time. Were um, you? Probably. Yeah. I was just doing it because my family wanted me to do it. But going back to the boundaries thing, my kids and I talk about what I watched versus what they watched and what my parents let me do versus what they did. As I, I I said, I was telling my kids, like, there were times where I was in another state. And my parents didn't even know. They thought I was here and I was somewhere. I I wasn't in Georgia. I was, like, in Florida when they thought I was somewhere else. And I was in high school. This isn't, like, in college, right? And and so there was no, there was nothing in that sense where, and there were reasons for that, right? My family was divorced. My mom was busy. She was working so that she could pay for me to be able to do the things that I wanted to do so that my sisters could do the things too. My father, uh, God bless him. He is now passed, but he had his own life and he was um, busy doing the things he was doing. And my sisters were older and they were really good friends. So they were always hanging out with each other, but I was the third and the youngest and the only boy. And so it, you just sort of slip through the cracks. Right. And, and so I understand what you're talking about as far as the danger of having no boundaries of just feeling like I, there's no, but it wasn't felt so I'm interested to hear what, you, what your response to this. For me, it wasn't felt like freedom, right? It, w- it was felt like what I just said, like I've just slipped through the cracks. Like nobody really cares what I'm doing. There wasn't a sense like it's in this great, I can go do whatever I want. There was a sense of I can do whatever I want because nobody seems to care what I'm doing. And that didn't feel good. Yeah. That didn't breed in me this happiness and this joy. There was just kind of a sense at an early, very early stage that I was just alone in all of this. And and I had other destructive views of about the world. But um, I just wanted to balance that out from what you're saying because you you grew up in a strict environment. I grew up in the opposite. And uh, I I wasn't. It wasn't a totally strict environment, though. I guess I guess one difference I would point out would be that. Um, I did have a lot of freedom growing up in the eighties in terms of like <laughs> how I spent my time. Yeah. But I had expectations of what yes. I wouldn't be doing with that time. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I'd be out in the woods, you know, starting fires and just doing stuff that boys did in the eighties. Yes. But you know, if I, if I stepped out of line or if I, I'll give you an example. If I were to ever talk to my mom the way I see some of the guys I work with talk to their mom, I'd I'd be buried under the foundation yeah. of my house. That even as a divorce, as a child of divorce, my dad was never more than a phone call away. Right, and that I mean that's true, right? If I talk to my, I can remember times when I crossed the line and talked to my mom, and it was like the wall, you know, reaching for the wall because I didn't have cell phones, but <laughs> reaching for the right. wall and starting the, the the dial the phone, and I'm panicking, I'm screaming, no, 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 because dad. That is coming. So, yeah, that was there. It wasn't complete freedom there because I do remember 
that. And my my when before my parents were divorced, my dad when we would go on trips, they would like we could get so bad. I remember one time he like hung his belt from the rearview mirror while we're driving <laughs> as a reminder of what what could be. Uh, so, but going back, so foundations set by the family, it's not just absenteeism, it's sort of a libertine attitude that they can have. But also, to your uh, description there, um, boundaries only work if you have some sort of fear of the consequences. Yeah. You know, it, your fear of your father growing up still carried some weight with yes. it. Yes. Yeah. There was, there, was a, there was a point you did not cross. Right. Because even though he wasn't there all the time, he would come. If he was mad enough, he'd get in the car and he would right. come. And we would sort it all out that way. Yeah, so you're, that is true. Yeah, there wasn't complete freedom. And, uh, and I know, because I know your kids, that your kids feared you. In oh, a, yeah. In a healthy way. Oh, heck yeah. I don't know if it's healthier. I can remember. <laughs> Maybe it's unhealthy. <laughs> Maybe unhealthy or healthy. Uh, I do remember the most. Uh, the, I, don't, I don't know if it's a bad moment or a good moment as a parent, but my son went through a period where um, when he was very young, he was not sleeping through the night. And it was every night. And then when you have two that decide not to sleep, you don't ever sleep. So, like, if he does sleep and MJ decides not to sleep, I'm up. It doesn't matter, right? And so I, was, I, I think I was, like, three days of not sleeping. And all of a sudden, Peyton was afraid. Like, he, like there were things like he's a, he, he doesn't like his mattress. He's afraid of his mattress. It's all weird stuff like that, right? So one day uh, he calls me in, and it's the middle of the night, and I'm just exhausted. And he says, um, he's like, there's something in the closet, Dad. There's something in the closet. And it's like, there's, there's, there's nothing in the closet, son. He's like, I'm afraid of something in the closet. There's nothing in the closet for you to be afraid of, son. And he's like, Dad, I'm just, I don't, I can't sleep. I'm terrified. It's like two or three in the morning. And I got close to him and I said, let me ask you something. Is there anything in that closet that you think you should be more afraid of than me right now? Uh, <laughs> I love it. He, I love that. He just looked at me and said, uh, no, sir. And I was like, then you go to sleep, son, because <laughs> I can't do this. Again, and and so he's able to go to sleep. So, so yes, there was my kids did grow up with an understanding that there were we had like it standards, not not necessarily like a strict rules, but standards, and that if you cross those standards, there would be consequences. And and learned very early, by the way, that the the things they were more afraid of is what you could take away from them, not what you could do to them. Right? I mean, for for my kids, it wasn't a fear of being hit or a fear of being spanked or anything like that it was because the the second i realized they would care more about me taking television or that away or something they were playing with away from them they would take a beating right they would tell you beat me but don't like give me a spanking but yep. don't take that then that goes that's the most effective way to do that so for my kids the consequences were always restriction you get less privilege because of the things that you've done and and they were, you would, I think you can also ask them, they were just fear, there was also a fear for them of just disappointing us. They didn't oh, like, yeah. they didn't like disappointing their parents. They did, they hated that. Mm -hmm. I remember them telling us that one time that it, they were more, the hardest part of dealing it with certain things was that sense that they knew that we were disappointed and they didn't want that. So, yeah. so fear and disappointment were part of it. Yeah. Means you parented them right. <laughs> So, so the foundation of family values, and I will say, I want, I want you to hear, I want to ask you about this too. I was talking to some really good friends of mine, really smart people, really successful people, 
And I went to see if this plays into what you're saying. And they were talking about how they grew up. And they grew up with parents that restricted access to certain <clears> things. <throat> and they were telling me, now that I'm older and I have my own kids and we have money because they're very successful, they said, I can't tell my kids no. So because I remember when it felt like for them to not get things and I don't want them to have to feel that, to not have those things. They're like, I love my kids. I want to be, I know I should say no, but I can't say no. And I was telling them, look, my kids have grown up with the luxury of a dad who can't afford to buy them everything. So it's very easy for me to say no, because I literally can't give them the things that they want all the time. Uh, but how is that? Does that feed into what you're talking about too? That Well, let me give you an example of saying no. One thing my, my grandmother always said to me growing up, and I, I spent a lot of time as my mom's mom. Uh, she passed away from Parkinson's years ago. Um, but she was one of the most godly women I've ever just been around. And um, whenever, like, I've only heard her yell at me maybe twice in my life, and each each time it just scared scared the stuff out of me. And uh, But the the only thing that she would say that would really – hit home is she would say, I love you too much to let you act this way. Mm. And that was her way of saying no. Yeah. Yeah. And, and immediately it would turn around my behavior, my brother's behavior. Yeah. You know, it just, it would stop all the fighting. In our family, we had a saying, um, if they ever, ever whined or cried about anything that they wanted, the rule in our family was, I would ask them a question, say, what do you get if you whine or cry? And my kids would say, nothing. And that that could happen out in public. We would be doing something, and my kid would get, one of the kids would do something, and I said, wait, what do you get when you whine and cry? And they would say, nothing. I was like, okay, then nothing it is until we find a more mature, or, or, or I don't know what the right word for it is, because they were kids, they weren't mature, but just a more emotionally productive way of handling it, whatever it is that you want. So, so... Now, getting back to the foundation of family values and what we're talking about, how does this feed into despair? It gives you, it gives you something to hold on to. Okay. Because it, it gives you a reason for how you act, how you treat people, um, a reason and kind of a, I guess a greater purpose for who you are, you know, your identity. Yeah. Um, and also who you're not. Okay. So there was a sense and, and maybe that I just don't hear parents talking like this before. There was a sense for me growing up of that you're a trotty. Yeah. And that meant something. That's right. Instead of now it's like they're three years old and, we, you get to go be who you are, discover your truth. Yeah. That, was, that was not how I grew up. No, no. Yeah. And I'm not saying that everybody needed to grow up like I grew up, but there was value in knowing that I was a trotty. Yes, yes. We say that in our house. We actually say that very early on with the kids. We say, look, I don't have a ton of money to give you, but I got a decent name. And I worked really hard for that name. And so did your mom. Mm -hmm. And so what you do reflects on that, right? I gave you a decent name. Don't screw it up, right? I gave you the one thing I could give you. The Watts name is pretty good in our community. Don't mess it up because you're you're one of us. And I like what you said, who you're not, because we do talk like that in our family as well. 
that's not who we are. Like when we see certain people doing certain things or, or when my kids may have flirted with certain ideas or even when they cross certain lines, that would be a way that we talked about things. It's not just positively, this is what we aspire to be. Because for us, it's very simple. We're Christians. We aspire to represent Christ as best we can in the world around us. But we're not that. I like That was a big part of our way of talking as well. Mm-hmm. That's not who we are. Your, your family, your name, the way we raised you, that's just not what we are. And if I see elements in there, you are, you're leaving in some way or another what you were raised to be, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, there's to some degree or another, obviously there's the individual, but you're right. I mean, it, it's coming like free range kids now. Um, and so, so that you yes. mean they don't understand they're out there. They're expected to go out into the world at a very young age and function by making these really serious choices about who they are. While at the same time, the family hasn't given them what they need to be able to navigate that. Right. Okay. All right, that makes sense. All right, now, now, I want to get to another thing you said, though, about foundation of family values, because the first thing was identity, but the second thing you said was safe, safety, safe spaces. How, like, expand on that a little bit. Those boundaries give you a safe space. Okay. Those rules and limits give you an understanding of what is acceptable, what's unacceptable, how I should live. If I'm just supposed to figure that out as an eight-year-old kid, that's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And do, do you, it's weird to think of that idea. I've, I've never thought about it until you said that, how much that is have been a part of our conversation as growing up, though. The idea of your family is should be safe. Mm-hmm. It should be, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if there's one, even if we think of it just from like an evolutionary biological point of view from <clears throat> apes and troops and taking care of, your troop should be the people that protect you, take care of you, nurture you. If we, from a Christian point of view, your family should be the people who are, are helping you understand the world that you live in, navigating, helping you navigate it. Uh, it should be a place where you feel safe. But for, for a lot of people, it's just not. And when you, when you talk about the, the foundation of family values, it's clear how that can be affected by rules. But when you talk about it from that idea of that home and family aren't safe, then that that would have a hugely negative effect on you. Sure. Yeah. And um, do you see that with young people that you're dealing with? Every day. And how does that look for them? Without divulging, obviously. You know, yeah, you sure. Um, I think one of the toughest uh, segments of the population that I work with is individuals that um, have been adopted. And adoption's a great thing. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I truly support. But a lot of the kids that I work with that have been adopted go on to need a lot of emotional support as they grow up because there's this, one of their first core memories, even if it's just an emotional memory, a memory in your body that you're not even necessarily aware of, one of their first core memories is being rejected by their parents, Mm. by their biological parents. And so um, a lot of them really struggle to understand who they are to, um, you know, I guess I kind of diverged from the safety issue. But no, it's no, still no, that, no, 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 It's still yeah. that foundation of the family of identity of who I am, the values of what makes me me and what makes me, 
you know, who I am, my last name, uh, my faith, uh, yeah. you know, the things that I believe in. Um, I'll talk about it in a few minutes, but, you know, I put depth on there because I don't see young people having a lot of depth right now. And some of that I ascribe to the Internet. Yeah. Um, but, it like, one of the things that I do on, you know, once I start getting to know somebody, uh, a kid that I work with, is I've got this cup of just different topics that we talk about. Um, and so they'll pull out a slip of paper and it'll say stress or I'll pull out a strip of paper that says religion. The hardest one that any of them can, are able to talk about is purpose. Hmm. I just don't think, they, they just don't understand the concept of purpose and the concept that my life is bigger than how I'm feeling right now yeah, or how popular I am on social media. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was just thinking, you know, it was interesting. I was thinking about the Remember the ice bucket challenge a few years ago with, for ALS for Lou Gehrig. And it was, I don't know if you knew about that or if you were following it, cause I don't know how much you're online, but th- th- there was a Facebook thing phenomenon where people were, were doing this ice bucket challenge and they would dump ice on themselves and then they would nominate like three other people to dump ice on themselves. And this was all to raise awareness and ALS. I don't have, have any idea how that worked, but it, that was the, the thing. And I was talking to a youth minister about it. And I thought this was so interesting because he said, you know, the ice bucket challenge is going on right now. And I said, yeah. And he said, do you know what most, what's going on with more young people than anything else right now is they are dealing with the crushing disappointment of never being nominated for the ice bucket challenge. So that's most of them, right? It's this, this phenomenon that's taken over and these, these people are nominating and they're keeping it with these groups and you can't do it if you haven't been nominated to do it. And they all want to participate and be a part of it. But now they're being socially rejected on social media. And, and he said it to me, and he's like, it's a re- it's a genuinely real rejection that they're feeling over something that he was willing to acknowledge. Stupid, right? They're aware that the world is doing this ice bucket challenge. At the same time, they're dealing with being left out of it. And only brought that up because of what you were saying of at the moment, right? When you talk about purpose, purpose is bigger than that. My kids never did the ice bucket challenge, but they could have cared less. Yeah, I mean, they could not have cared less. Right, they could not have cared less about the ice bucket challenge because they had they all had things they were working on. Mm-hmm. So to stop and do that would have been weird to them. Why would I stop and dump water in my head with ice water? I've got I got work to do. I'm I'm right. focused on other things. Uh, so, but if you do lack purpose and you're getting your meaning from those momentary uh, affirmations, because that that youth minister wasn't messing around, man. He said this is terrible. This is a terrible thing in my world right now. I have got kids calling me and parents calling me because their kids are so depressed because, and the worst part about it was, you know what some of the parents were calling him asking for, get somebody to nominate my kid. Like, wow. Not, not to help them navigate the emotional idiocy of caring one way or another about this. But the solution was get somebody to nominate my kid. Could you talk to somebody and get them to nominate my kid? So that, that was an interesting thing to me. I got, I'm sorry. I know it's a little sidebar, but when you're talking about the emotions of the moment and how it can dictate, I mean, for that youth ministry, he's what he's saying is these kids are feeling real genuine, something like despair at this moment. 
Because on Facebook, nobody's saying, go dump water on your head, ice water on your head for Lou Gehrig's disease. Like yeah. any of those people even knew what Lou Gehrig's disease was, right? No. They just Still don't. Video. Still don't, yeah. So so let's go back to safety, though. I don't want to get away from that because um, let, me, let me just tell you a quick, you know, as, as quick as I'm capable of being, but an interesting story that, that, that's about an animal, but I think it relates somewhat to why I think safety struck me when you said that, and then I started to think about it while you were talking. I had a dog. Um, his name was Bruno. Uh, he was a Sharpe that we rescued. He was viciously abused before we got him. He was used as a bait dog. Uh, so for bait, for those people who don't know, for people who fight dogs, bait dogs are the ones that don't want to fight. Uh, and so they just throw them in there to, to advance the cruelty of the fighters. They give them a dog that doesn't like to fight. So they just attack that dog. And he was rescued. They thought he was dead when he was rescued. We adopted him. Uh, he was a, he was skin and bones, and then over the the six years that we had him, in the first year he gained weight, he grew to his full size. But the thing about Bruno was everything outside of our house was horrible to him. And what, however a dog processes the world, his memory of the world and everyone outside of it, about, outside of our house, was horrible. I could leave every door in our house open. He would never leave. He would go play in the backyard. He was never leaving our house, right? Mm -hmm. And he got sick. Um, he had a seizure one night, and this was, you know, and uh, the close to when he started when he found out he had brain cancer. And he ultimately died of this. So he had um, he got his, he had a seizure, and so I took him to this twenty four hour vet over there in Sandy Springs, and I drop him off, and they say let 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 us observe him overnight. And you know, I'm freaking out because the seizure was awful, and I'd never seen anything like that. So I leave my dog there. I get home. Drive home, finally, at like 3 in the morning, I get a phone call. They say, you got to come back and get him. <laughs> and I said, why? And they said, we can't control him. And I said, what do you mean? They said, he, he is so aggressive. He's like, we can't get near him. We've had to lock him in a room. He's taken over a room of the veterinary practice, and we can't get near him. And, and so I went back to get him, and this is, I walked in, and they were all standing like outside of this room, like, what is wrong with your dog, man? And I, I said, what's going on? They said, we have, I said, why don't you just sedate the dog? It's your job, right? You're vets. It's your job. And he said, we have given him so much sedation that we're afraid if we give him any more, it will kill him. And he still won't have anything to do with anybody. So I walk, I open up the door, I walk into the door and there's Bruno. He's standing in the middle of the room. He's got one of these collar things on him, like where they've been trying to wrangle him, like Turner and Hooch. Like Jurassic Park. Yeah, like a, yeah, like a velociraptor <laughs> in Jurassic Park. And his hackles are all up and he's growling. And I walk in the room and I say, what's going on, buddy? And he, he, all of a sudden his head goes up, all his hair goes down. He walked across the room he laid down on my foot and passed out. And I, I, I bring that up to because it's obviously it's not a direct translation to what it is, what safety means for a kid to be able to go home and be safe, right? To feel safe in your home. But for, for that animal, for our dog, there was no safety outside of us. But the second I was there, everything was okay. And he was able to relax. I mean, he just went to sleep. Right? He went from fighting mode to sleep. And, and I, I see that similar thing in that way to my kids who will be out working. When they come home, they sleep a lot. It's like whatever they're dealing with out there in the world, it's like they come home and you just see them. Like, like oh, and they're able to just rest. 
And I can't imagine what it would be like for the kids for who they don't have that safety, right? That, that, that home doesn't feel safe. So there's no rest. Yeah. No, no safe place to just be. Part of what I deal with too, is that uh, a lot of the kids that I work with have neurological disorders, Mm. OCD, bipolar, schizophrenia, um, some pretty intense stuff, Tourette's syndrome. So they don't feel safe in their own brain or their own bodies. And, Bruno settled down immediately for you because you're the alpha, and he felt safe with you. Yeah. In the same way as Christians, we feel safe with God, or we yes. should. There's safety. We can in, rest in him. There, there's Yes, we can. Yeah. And there's there's even mentally and emotionally, there's safety in the cross. Yeah. Yeah, I screwed up. Yeah. There's safety in the cross. Yeah. There's a reset point. Um, it's really important for families, for the parents to be the alpha for the kid that is out of control in their brain and body, they if they have nobody to help them control and to help them be safe, that's terrifying. Oh. That's a that's a prison in and of itself to be out of control and nobody can control me. Oh. So there, yeah, the parents. I, but but and that but that extends, I think. I mean what you said there I think is so important because it extends in beyond that, right? If it's so important that the parents help them can help them control. Cause even for any kid, right. Who's not dealing with what you just talked about, because I know what it's like. My, my daughter is a type one diabetic. My wife had a stroke. I mean, we've had things in our family. I've had my own medical issues. It's weird when your body turns on you. Mm-hmm. It's a weird thing to know. I, and I can't control my brain. I can't control my body. My daughter can't control a pancreas. And, and to, like my daughter, her body's trying to kill her 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right. It's actively trying to kill her. And that's just what she lives with. Not only can she not trust it. I mean, she knows her body in, in many ways is at war with her in some ways. My wife is the same way. If she's not taking certain medicin- medicines that she got on after her stroke, after she survived her stroke, there's just things that she can't deal with. Uh, but even as, a, as that kind of translates to all of us, the idea of a parent has to, has to be the one to help them to control that concept of, of safety for them, right? Being the alpha means, uh, in that sense, being the head, uh, being willing to be unpopular, or being willing to say the things gives them safety. With my own kids, I'll tell you this. One of my favorite things that we did for them where it just seemed to work was we told them very early on, I'm happy to be the bad guy. Like, I, I, am, I am thrilled to be the bad guy. So they have code things that they can text us at any given moment that is a code for me to be a bad guy. And they'll so they'll send it to when I can't tell you the codes because I don't want them to get busted with their friends because they still do it. They will really? still do it. Even That's in college, awesome. they will send me texts every once in a while. And sometimes I'm oblivious. Um, uh, like with one of them, it's if they ever send me things in like text abbreviation, like FYI or something, because they hate that. Mm-hmm. And that means... They want they yep. want me to call them and, and get on their case about something and get them out of wherever they are, and so we that's always been a rule. We always say, look, you, you you never have to find a reason to not do something you're not comfortable with. I'm your reason mm-hmm. always, and and you can tell anybody and everybody that that my dad just called and I'll call and yell so they can hear it. And it is so funny because my kids will send me one of those texts and then I call up and they're on the phone like. And they're acting like they're fighting with me, and I'm talking extra loud. I said, get home right now so that their friends can hear it over the phone. 
But it is a safety net that all of them have used at some point or another that mom and dad said no. If, they, if there's something that they just don't feel ready to deny themselves, but they really don't want to do, they use us to deny it. And, and it is, it, that is one of those things that just worked for us throughout all of their lives, even to the point you say, even my college kids will still do it. They'll mm-hmm. send me code, get me out of this. And I'm like, oh, I can do that, man. Yeah. I'll come get you. I mean, I'll, I'll say that too. I'm 42. My dad would still come pick me up yes. if, uh, if I needed him to. Yeah. Or, I will, or my mom. They, they would, they'd be there in a heartbeat. I'll come and get you out of whatever you're in, and I will be the, the bad guy that sets that limit for all of your friends to see. So you don't even have to go through it. You can just be mad at me for being a jerk. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure my dad could still whoop my butt too. <laughs> to. He's a big dude. He is. He, and he's a serious man. Yes. I, I said, I'm not a serious man. Your father is. <laughs> it's a, uh, I've enjoyed the few times I've gotten to hang out and talk to him. So, so safety then becomes an important thing, I think, too, because as you said, there's no rest. Without safety, there's no rest. For those that are dealing with it internally, it's even magnified. It's worse because they can't feel safe even within themselves. But without those family foundations that are giving us guidelines, principles, identity, uh-huh. You also mentioned something earlier when you said uh, I never wanted to disappoint my parents or that bothered me. I remember there's something that you said to me uh, uh, in Sunday school. This was years ago. Um, but you said, you know, people don't really feel shame anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, William Bennett wrote a book called The Death of Shame, I think is the name of okay. it. Okay. Uh, uh. Yeah, and I, I I see that in our culture, and I see that in young people. And if if you – if they're feeling shamed about something that they're doing, it's like you've personally insult, you've hurt them with your words. Yeah. And uh, I remember lots of times that uh, I, you know, did something that a trotty wouldn't do. <laughs> and uh, I, I felt ashamed. Yeah. They let me know that I should be ashamed. And you ought to be. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean, ought that, to be. that is the hardest. Yeah. yeah. You, you, there are things you should properly be shamed for. Uh, <laughs> My kids are like these crazy little conservatives at college, right? And they they have these these classes where they're fighting with the people in class. And one of them has said so many ugly things about me to one of my kids because they hear about the way they were raised, my kids were raised, and they say these horrible things. And my kids are so funny because they said, when people say that stuff to me, I say, he loves me. You know, they're, they're all mad. I can't believe your dad made you do this or your dad made you do this. He sounds like this or he sounds like They're just saying these horrible, hateful things about me. Yeah. And my kids' response is all the same. Why would why would that bother me? He loves me, right? Mm-hmm. He he would do anything for me. He was doing those things for me to, to keep me safe or to protect me. And they would say, I'm happy who I am because my parents were able to do those things. So it's... Yeah, it, disappointment and shame. I, it's funny. My my girls joke about the slut shaming thing because they're like this idea that we're not supposed to shame people for. And we talked about my, this when my daughter was on. I think we discussed it briefly with OnlyFans mm-hmm. when we talk about that. You'll see a lot of the whatever podcast. I think I talked JD and I talked about this before. Yeah, where they come on and on the whatever podcast, these I'd women love to see you on that podcast who have OnlyFans accounts who are, who are saying. Um, you know, this is, I'm an entrepreneur. I was like, no, you're not. That's you're, you're, you're a self-made pimp. I mean, you're pimping yourself out, but, but it's still, and then when you see those people that confront them, 
Your kids are going to have to live with this if you have kids forever. This will never go away. This is a permanent part of their life, and it's, it's a part of the decisions you're making affect beyond you. But you're right. The rejection of shame uh, and the death of things like outrage and shame in our culture, it, it's, it's, it, it, it makes it difficult to correct. Right? Jacques Barzun wrote a book called The Dawn of, uh, was it the Dawn of Decadence? Well, and, and, and then he was talking about that there was a time where the Bible was a corrective. And what he meant by that was there was a time when you could open up the Bible and you could say to somebody, look, what you're doing is wrong. See, it says right there that you shouldn't do this. And they would see, they would look at it and they would say, oh, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't do that. And it was a way to correct them because you were going something external to them from which they got their identity. And Carl Truman talks about this a little bit as well in his books on identity and, and the way that we're um, – processing that in the world around us, where we're getting our identity from. And the, if you'd say, well, the, the church tells you who you are or your relationship to God in some way tells you who you are and identifies. So when you stray away from that and somebody can point back to it and say, no, 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 look, this is how we're supposed to be. Barzun said, oh, you would see that. And you'd say, okay, you're right. I should correct my behavior. And then he says, well, the Bible's not corrective anymore. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, you know, Carl Truman would say there's nothing corrective anymore because the, the, dictator of what I will be is my internal identity, how I, def- what I decide I want right. to be. And so any effort to correct has nowhere to point to, see, this is the standard or paradigm and you're outside of that. And, and as a result, I mean, I, you see this, I guess what you were just saying more than the rest of us, then what, what do you, how do you then when you're dealing with somebody, that's a question for them. How do you get them back? if they have no external source of identity or correction. Well, the Bible's not a corrector because it's not an authority. Yeah. And even in the church, you've got the church splintered on these issues. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Where you'll you'll you know any hot button topic we talk about in politics right now, they're arguing about it in the church too. Yep. Abortion, um, gay marriage, gay clergy. Yeah. Right. Uh, trans transsexualism yeah all of it yeah every bit of it from yeah. both sides somebody's saying jesus wants you to love everybody no matter who they are no matter what they're doing others say you can't love somebody without correcting them or telling them the truth yeah but but uh, when you have a young person in front of you who is struggling because of this i mean how do we how do you help them connect back to something most of the young people I, I work with don't struggle because of this. Mm-hmm. They struggle because their parents are mad at them because of their behavior because of this. <laughs> okay. Does that, does that make sense? No, no, wait. You're going to have to say that again. I didn't follow that completely. Okay. <laughs> They're not really struggling with identity-type issues at the ages that I'm working with. Okay. They're struggling because everyone else is mad at them because of their behavior because... They are struggling with identity. Okay. They're, they're, I guess they're not cognitively struggling. With, so they're not actively struggling with identity. Yeah, like what's my purpose? What am I supposed to do in life? But that it is actually something that they're wrestling with if they realize it or not. Right. Yeah, it's at root of their problems. Right. But they don't even know that. No awareness. Okay. In fact, self-awareness is a lost art in our culture. Yeah. And that's a problem. Yeah. Right? Um, it's a problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the first great moment of self-awareness I had. I think I was I was talking to a group of people and, and we were discussing things and like, well, I'm a pretty laid back guy. 
And everybody in the room just got quiet. <laughs> You're the least laid back person I've ever met in my life, Jay. <laughs> it's like if, when I think of laid back, you're not even on the chart anywhere. Uh, you're, you're, you're the most intense person I've ever had a conversation with about almost everything you talk about. And that's not how I saw myself. And that was an interesting realization to come to. And, at, at, you know, older than I probably should have been to have to learn. I thought it was this majorly laid back dude. And there was, no. Have you come to terms now with I the have. intensity? I am very, I am very comfortable with it. There was a pastor one time giving a, uh, a talk about different people, different personality types of the church. And I was listening. He was so funny. And he's, it was Mark Rutland, Assemblies of God guy. And I was listening to him on the radio because I used to listen to him when I was lunch when I was a young Christian. I just became a Christian. And it was, for whatever reason, it was it provided me some level of peace or to, to just hear somebody talking about God during lunch at work. Uh, and... He was talking about different personality types. He was talking about what I would have identified my personality type. And he said, uh, if this is your personality type, you should never talk to anybody again for the rest of your life. And then he went on and he started talking about other people in the church and their roles in the church and the things that they were doing. I mean, I was so mad. That is so, we have to have some level of ability to contribute, even though we may be people that have different, this, uh, this intensity as far as how we do it. There's got to be some use for us. I mean, that's just bizarre for him to say that. And so he talks about another 20 minutes. And then he says, Okay, I want to tell everybody in the room something that's been going on for the last 20 minutes. He said, like, 20 minutes ago, I said, if this is who you are, you should never talk to anybody again for the rest of your life. And he said, and all of the people that are those kind of people have been sitting, they haven't heard another thing I've said since I said, they're sitting somewhere right now just as angry as they can possibly be that I just said that about them. And he said, now, let's go back to you people. If, if He said, I just needed you to identify yourself for me. He said, if you're one of those people that never heard another word I said, and you're sitting there angry right now about what I said 20 minutes ago, he said, let me help you out. If you do everything that you can for the rest of your life to never say anything to anyone ever again, you will still barely be tolerable to the rest of us. <laughs> and he's like, so, so control yourself, man. <laughs> I mean, don't, don't feel like you have to say everything to everybody that passes, that crosses your mind. And that was, that again, that was a helpful self-awareness moment. All right. So, so family foundation, we talked, you said it gives us identity. It gives us purpose. It helps us to understand our purpose and it gives us safety. And that without those, we see obvious paths to despair. Right. Right. Okay. So now we're moving on to emotional control. That is your second point. Um, well, let me address something first. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Whatever. In one of the articles that I was reading, um, a guy by the name of William, Dr. William Copeland in Vermont, um, listed kind of seven criteria for despair. Okay. And, um, and they were, I, I thought that the most interesting part about his study was that um, he described despair as something other than a neurological disorder that we know of in the DSM, you know, major depressive disorder, uh, any kind of anxiety disorders. Now, depression and anxiety certainly have aspects of despair, but he kind of described it as more of uh, more of like a personality disorder okay. um, in, in a way that people kind of address life. Okay. Um, so just kind of a, a way of thinking, which made it even to me deeper than just, okay, I've got OCD or, um, I've got some depression here. Um, 
I don't know. He said it, it, it's a it's a worldview. Yes. Right. Yes. So their right. their entire way of looking at the world is broken. Right. And that feeds into that category of, of experiencing despair. And that's why I I feel like the foundations of which you base your life on are so important in being able to yeah. to deal with something like that. Yeah. It it, it would directly address then that idea of. Um, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. That's the book that Carl Truman wrote. So that's the academic level okay. book, um, and where he talks about identity and part. He talks about the different during different periods where we got our understanding of who and what we were supposed to be. One point we get it from the state. One point we get it from the church. Uh, one point we get it from the body, the political body, uh, and uh, the economic identity. Right? How, how my co- economic t- contributions. And he said, now we just get it from ourselves. Yeah. Right? That it's an internally decided thing. Uh, and so if that's your worldview, then yeah, okay, that's interesting. Okay, so emotional control, how does that feed into all of this? So the worst thing that parents ever say to me, and they usually say it on an intake session until I correct them for it. What's an intake session? An intake session is just the very first session where okay. I meet with, uh, meet with the parents for the first half hour. Then I meet with the the teenager for the rest of the time. Okay, um, so the parents tell you why they brought the yeah their teenager to you, yeah. and then you spend time with the teenager to find out what they're mad about. Until a kid's eighteen and a legal adult, I always at least touch base with the parents. I try to meet with the parents for the first ten minutes of every session. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I just feel like it helps. You know, it gives me more insight into what's going on with the teenager and. Teenagers aren't exactly the most forthcoming individuals no. in the world. <laughs> no. So they're pretty good at hiding stuff. Yes, yes. Um, and if uh, they know uh, that I'm talking to the parents for their benefit, um, you know, I get into some issues with trust about that. But in general, if I see that the parents still have their authority in the family yeah. and, and the parents are able to say, one, I'm paying for these sessions, two, you're my kid until you're 18, so I'm going to be involved in your life and what's going on. And three, we're just going to be a part of this. Then the kid kind of relaxes. When the kid okay. when the kid is in full control of the family, uh, that dynamic can be kind of a struggle in terms of uh, talking to the parents as well. Uh, so before we get to emo- before we get to emotional control, tell me about that. What do you mean the kid is in control of the family? Oh, I, I see that as, as a pretty common dynamic nowadays is that the children are emotionally controlling the family. How? Uh, with their behavior. Um, and mainly because the parents give up their authority as, as authority figures. Okay. Um, is it just because the kids wear them down or they just don't have the... No, it's just it's just child-centered parenting. There, There's... You know, a lot of a lot of what I go back to in terms of of um, how I work with kids is also what I remember from my own childhood. Yeah, yeah. Um, I never remember being asked, "What would you like for dinner tonight?" <laughs> I would just go home and they'd say, "Sit down, we're having chicken." By the way, I still prefer that. That's like this conversation with my wife. We've been married for twenty five years. I have that conversation constantly. I said, "If I walk in the house and and." You have made something. Yeah, great. I'm going to eat it. I don't. I'm not going to. There's never going to be a, re, a moment hesitation. No. Nope. 
when you ask me, yeah, when you start asking me what I want, if if she decides, and it's not like Tracy makes dinner every night, but when Tracy decides to make dinner, she does right more regularly than I cook dinner. I, I, I can't explain to her how much I don't want to talk about what I want to eat. Right. But how much, how, how willing I am to eat whatever you make, right? Yeah. So if you ask me if I want to eat X, I'll probably tell you no. If you make X and I walk in the door and you're like, I made X, I'm going to be thrilled. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a... I, the Uncooked broccoli. Perfect. Perfect. Love it. That's right. Is it on a plate? <laughs> Can I eat it right now? Yeah. Then it's awesome. That's exactly what I wanted. Food. That's what I needed tonight. And honestly, kids have way too many choices these days. Oh, yeah. About everything. What, what kind of car would you like? Oh, my God. I mean... You think I don't get that question from that? All of the kids that I work with now, obviously, we live in a pretty affluent area. Yes, and I work in private practice, so uh, my clientele is fairly affluent. Um, but you know that that comes with uh comes with a lot of issues. Yeah, what kind well, of- like your friend said that uh, I can't tell my kids no. Man, I see that every day. And these are two. Hugely successful, or three, let's say three of all when I was talking to him, three hugely successful individuals who they know that part of their success was predicated on their family being disciplined when they were younger. Mm-hmm. And yet they still say it is so hard for me to say no to my kids. And a lot a lot of parents don't realize how much leverage they have in a relationship. Now they they may be able to define leverage in terms of their business relationships, but Parents set an authority figure has a lot of leverage within their family. I mean, your kid's not paying for the internet. Yeah. You can turn off the internet. Yeah. Most most parents don't like to set limits because those limits will affect them too. Well, if I yeah. turn off the internet, then I'm not going to be able to get on the oh. internet. Yeah. I've heard that one from friends before too. Yeah. That they don't, or even just the idea of it makes it more difficult. And if I turn off everything, the house becomes like an 18th century thing. I mean, all of a sudden, everybody's knitting and playing card yeah. games. <laughs> and everyone's talking to each other. And, I know. Uh, and it's like, well, if you don't want that, then, you know, you've got to keep the electronics running. Okay, so let's go back. So a kid's, a big problem then with a kid's emotionally controlling their home. Mm-hmm. So by that, they are, you mean that they they are dictating the emotional state of everybody in the home. Yeah. Well, kids are... By nature, emotional terrorists. They, they will hold you hostage to get their way. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess, sure. I mean, you see it all the time, right? Yeah. Even with little tiny kids in the stores. Oh, yeah. Just screaming and yelling, wanting what they want. One of my favorite stand-up bits. I love stand-up. And Bill Burr is one of yes. my favorite stand-up art, uh, comedians. And uh, one of his bits, he's talking about um, his little brother refused to eat what his mom cooked. And this was when he was real young in a high chair. And uh, so the next morning, that they, they put it in the refrigerator. The next morning, they got it out to give to him. He wanted, you know, bacon and eggs, what the rest of the family was having. But he had to eat his cold steak from the night before. And so his brother looks up at his mom. He says, I hate you, Mom. And he says his dad, without looking up, takes his full glass of milk and just throws it in his face. <laughs> Set the pack down and just sat there. And he said, well, his mom's like cleaning up the milk and everything. But never said a word to him. Just threw the whole glass of milk in his face. He said his brother never complained about food ever again. I don't know what that has to do about leverage. but uh, <laughs> Okay. 
So yeah, I, I a friend of my I was talking to an old guy one time, and uh, an older friend of mine now in his eighties. This was about ten years ago. He and I were talking, and he shared a story about. He said, um, "You know, I don't remember my dad hitting me much." He said, "But that was more common back then." He said, "I remember one time my dad hitting me, and said my mom walked in the room and she told me to do something, and I said no." It's like, and all of a sudden I was on the ground. It's like, I don't even remember the hit. I just remember being <laughs> on the ground and my dad standing over me. Uh, and he's like, and so he said, so that was, the, but that was, he said, it stuck, right? It stuck for me. That yep. was the, I was not going to ever say that again. Uh, at least not when my dad was somewhere in earshot of what was going on. So how would emotion, the loss of emotional control lead to despair? Oh, so let me go back to okay. the, the intake session. Yes. So the thing that I hear the most from parents um, is, I just want my kid to be happy. I hate when I hear that. I hate it. Because happiness is a very, very yeah. fleeting emotion. Yeah, yeah. I could be happy for five minutes and then, you know, somebody hit me in the head with a brick. Immediately, yeah. I'm not going to be happy. Yeah. So that's a crazy example, but... It, it, but it's it is, an emotional state. Yes, it's an emotional state yeah. that, that comes and goes. Um, you know, and I tell parents all the time, look, I, I don't care if your kid's happy. In fact, I'm not trying to make your kid happy. I want to help your kid learn how to be resilient yeah. because life is constantly like this. And so I'm going to, my job is to help your kid be more like this. And your job is to expect your kid to learn how to be like this. Yeah. Because life's not going to make them happy. And if you try to do everything you can to make them happy, that's too much pressure on them. Yeah. It, it creates this, this narcissism in them that, uh, that my happiness is the center of my universe. That's too much pressure for anybody to, make, to hold up. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And happy, yeah, to be happy all the time. There, there was, my, I had a friend die a couple of years ago of COVID and we were at his funeral and his, his brother was a chaplain and his brother was speaking. And I thought it was such an emotionally mature moment when he stood up and he said, it's okay to cry because Mark died. That's something that's worth crying over. Right. Mm -hmm. He said, it's okay to be sad at the loss of Mark. That's, this is something worthy of being sad over. And, you know, that is one of the things I can't imagine that standard of happiness being the marker of whether I'm being successful or not. Right. Yeah. Cause that's, that's hard to maintain for a day Yeah. at any given moment. It's, it's just, there's too many things that are coming up and to not be able to say there's reasons to be angry sometimes. There are good reasons to be mad sometimes. There are good reasons to be sad sometimes. There's yeah. there are good reasons to there there are there are I don't live life sitting around regretting a lot of things, but if you and I sat here and I started to think about some of the ways I treated people before I was a Christian and few, fewer after, but more a lot more before, there's regret. And I think that's good. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, I should regret that I did those things because I won't do them again now going forward. And I should learn from sometimes it's healthy to feel bad. Sometimes it's healthy to, and it's the right thing. MJ is an interesting thing. Cause she's, she's our type one diabetic. And when she, she was diagnosed when she was eight and in our household, we had very strong restrictions about how people talked 
when they were younger. Now they're older, I tend to let them go a little bit more, especially the the college age ones. You know, every once in a while they'll they'll slip into more college talk, and and I like so I'll let it go sometimes. But if they get too far, I'm like, all right, dial it in, Tarantino. We're getting a little care, <laughs> get a little carried away here. Uh, but um, we we told her when she was very young, I was like, look you're going to have to deal with diabetes and some days are going to be harder than others. So if I ever look at you and I say, what's wrong? And you just want to tell me, dad, diabetes sucks. Even though that's just not a way we want you talking about everything. You're allowed to talk about diabetes that way because it does because it sucks. And if you, if that helps you to just to, when I say what's wrong and you're, if you're struggling that's all you have to say to me for me to know that you're just mourning your diabetes for a moment. Right. And that's natural. You should mourn the fact that you don't get to live your life the same way that everybody else does. Occasionally it it should not be what you do all the time, but you're also allowed to feel that way at certain points. And it goes back to my first point. That's the emotional safety of the family too. Yeah. Yeah, she feels emotionally safe to that she can come to you and say, "Dad, I'm really mad right now. I'm mad at God. I'm mad at my yeah. body. Whatever yeah. it is." Yeah, she had a night one night where she said, "I went to, when she was younger. I went and prayed with her. I tried very hard." Here's here's a little thing that I learned in an article that I lived my life by. Uh, it said they asked they interviewed a bunch of people who were very successful in life. Uh, what what it, what were keys to your success and and, and one of the things that they had good relationships with their father. So they, they like dug deeper into those relationships with their father. And here's what they found out. People who have really, really, really good relationships with their dad, often their strongest memories were the last 20 minutes of the day that their dad was there to pray with them or to talk them through the day that their father was just a, a presence at the end of the day with them. And the, the, the end result of the person that was writing the article that I read, they said, basically as a dad, you can screw up all day. But if you get the last 20 minutes right, that's what your kids will remember forever. Mm-hmm. They're going to remember that dad was there, a calming influence at the end of the day, somebody to help them come to terms with everything. And so I lived my life by that. I was like, okay, I'm going to be a wreck. I know I'm going to mess up all sorts of things, but if I'm there at the end of the day, I'm going to pray with my kids every night. I'm going to talk to them. So I'm talking to MJ. I'm sitting next. We're praying at the end of the day. And then um, she, she asked if it's okay. She started asking me about diabetes, right? Because she was talking about how how much she struggles with the idea that every night that she goes to bed, she has a different experience. For other people, going to bed has no stress at all. For her going to bed, she may die. It's just, you know, one of the risks that happens with type 1 diabetics. They may crash low and die. And she said, that's a reality. Every time I go to sleep, I know that's a reality that I live with. And she said, do you believe God has a purpose for everything? And I said, Yeah. I believe he has a plan that he's working for the good of all those who love Christ. I believe that that's what scripture tells us. So he has a reason for me to be a diabetic. And I said, well, I have to believe if all things work to the good of those who love Christ, that, that what you're enduring is good in the long run, even though we can't see here at this moment, especially when she was younger. And she's like, so is it, is it wrong that I'm, I'm not happy to be a diabetic? Is it wrong that I pray for it to go away, for a miracle, for God to heal me? And I told her, honey, 
I pray every day for that for you. Every single day, I pray for a cure for the end of this, for you to just be able to be a normal little girl that doesn't have to worry about any of those stuff that you have to worry about, that you don't need to go to bed every night with the stress that you're going to die. And I was like, and darling, if God would let me take it from you and take it onto myself, I would like that. She said, even though you believe he has a purpose for me to have it, you would take it like that. If he would let me take it from you, I would, but he won't. And there's no cure right now. It's better. It's better than it was. You live in the best time ever to be a type one diabetic, but, but there is no cure. And it's like, so, but no, I said, not only is it not wrong for you to not be settled in this, you need to understand that we aren't either. We don't want this for you, but it is what it is, man. It's what God has given you. And now she would tell you, by the way, as an adult, that he used type 1 diabetes to keep her out of certain things that she may have gotten in trouble doing. Or that there are things that it, it gave her the ability to, to express herself in ways that she's more comfortable because of it. She still doesn't like it. Doesn't want to be a type 1 diabetic. But she does see through it some ways that God has helped her. Um I'm not even sure why I started talking about that, but we're talking about emotional control right now is the, <laughs> the subject matter. And that, oh, that idea of being happy all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That all I want for you to be is happy. Are we, I didn't, I like your, your answer. I want them to be resilient. Um, we would tell our kids, I'm not particularly interested in your happiness. I'm particularly interested in you being good. And those are two different things. I want you to be a good person, a good human being. Uh, One of my favorite uh, movie quotes was uh, in Batman Begins. When he's, uh, man, now I just lost it. Um, it's not something, something. It's what you do that defines you. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. It's not, gosh. I should have should have thought that through before I opened my mouth. <laughs> I know what you're saying, and before you said it, I could have quoted it back to you. Yeah, because <laughs> that comes back later. It's what Rachel says to him. Rachel Dawson says to him. It's um, not who you are, it's what you do that it's defines It's what you do it? that defines it, yeah. Because he quotes that back to her when mm-hmm. she says, who are you? Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. Yeah, it is a... But also think about this. If you're... Um, it, if all you do is preach to their kids, to your kids about their own happiness, so your kid already thinks that my happiness is what makes my parents happy. Oh. So I've got to be happy for them to be happy. And then you also don't have that foundation of who I am. You know, I don't know what it means to be my last name. You know, what does that mean? I I don't have any sense of my identity or what it means to be a decent human being or person. What kind of person does that create? I've got no foundation of my identity and all I have to be is happy all the time. I have to be. Yes. Yeah, I have to be, right? It's, that it's, creates an intensely narcissistic person. And you saw, you and I talked about that before because you said that oftentimes you're dealing with narcissists being raised by narcissists. And that and that that's hard for counselors. That that you said that that's that's a difficult you talked about you said you talked about it professionally with other counselors. What expand on that a little bit. Uh, Shoot, that's just that's just our culture right now. Though. Okay, 
I mean, we, we live in a, a culture of narcissism where, I mean, look at social media. The most popular app out there is Snapchat. I mean, Snapchat is just me looking at me for like eight hours a day and showing the world how cool I am. And, and, and they snap back and forth to each other. Yeah. yeah. I had to let, at one point for, uh, Nika had never been on Snapchat. And, I had, and she made this lacrosse team, and they required them to get on Snapchat for communication. Mm-hmm. And I would see her over there, like, I'll be driving places. And she's like, making all these faces. And then I said, how do you, what are you doing? So I'm just snapping people. And I have all these snaps I got to catch up on. It's like I got to yeah. catch up on my snaps. And uh, it is a weird, now the uh, B-Reel is, have you heard of that one? I think so. Okay, so. It was meant to, the idea behind Be Real was apparently it was meant to take away the staged things going on with others. So you get one Be Real a day and it comes up and it says it's time for your Be Real and you have a window to do it in. Mm-hmm. And so you have to, whenever the Be Real thing comes up, you take a picture of yourself and then a picture of the other side and that gets sent out to all the people that you share with so they can see what you're doing. Of course, every one of these things just produces regret in everyone's life, right? Because they're not there. Whoever is sharing, I'm snap. Look, I'm here with these people. We're snapping you and you're alone or whatever. Um, You know, it's a, it's a, it's a pain generator for the most part, but narcissism. I read a book on narcissism. You and I talked about that. because I was reading a book and it was, it said that the interesting thing about the, the, the claim that the book made, and it was written by one of the guys was a psychologist from university of Georgia. uh, And he was saying they were, they were, the authors were saying, the rise of narcissism actually is is it goes on the same rise as the rise of obesity in the United States. And there's not connected. We're not saying the narcissists are fat. What we're saying what we're saying is that something has gone on over this period of time. Mm-hmm. And as the world and the United States in particular have fretted endlessly about the rise of obesity, which it should. I mean, you know, to to live in the most obese nation that has ever existed on earth is an interesting Realism, you know, the reality of being yeah. in the United States. No, no, no nation has ever had so much so easy to be able to eat and get fat as much as the people of the United States have. Right? Yeah. We have both an a, a, an embarrassment of riches and so little to do <laughs> that we're able to just and it's work. I know I'm getting off on a th- like a, a rabbit trail here, but I watch these 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 people that I know are struggling with that. And I watch how hard they're working to maintain that. I'm like, dude, you are working. You're working right now to stay at this level, right? Mm-hmm. But they say at the same time that this has gone on that is a problem and it's given us crisis of heart disease and all these other things, narcissism has gone at the same rise that has risen at the exact same rate in the United States. But we don't talk about that as much. And, and that's a much more dangerous thing when these authors are saying ultimately for society is that you're seeing the the rise of narcissism and and they said versus they, they you know they differentiate between diagnosed narcissistic disorder and just a rise in general narcissistic traits and that those right. are not the same thing uh but that idea that and he they talk about it that on online when you're talking about social media that for the narcissist there's no such thing as bad publicity that there's there is no amount of attention that's negative Whatever it does to get attention on me mm-hmm. is a positive thing. And whatever negative thing I do to draw that attention to me 
if the end result is I get the attention, the attention's what I want, yep. right? And, it, and they talked about how even at their core, they're not even capable of seeing the negative things. They gave an example of a BBC documentary where they had interviewed this person and they were just horrible. And they went back to that person and they said, we want you to watch the interview before we release this to make sure that you understand how awful you are <laughs> as it just comes across. And, and before you put this out in the world, right? And they said they couldn't make the guy understand why he was awful. And they said, okay, well, then we're going to release it, right? Because all he could see was people are going to watch. People are going to turn in. I'm going to be a source of conversation. Yeah. And I'm interesting. So, but, so emotional control. But what does that mean to be awful? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, without standards. What does that mean to be awful? I was working with a kid yesterday. I'm certainly not going to say any names, but um, I, I was doing that exercise that I was telling you about with the cup and the different yeah. things and came to purpose. And, was, you know, 13-year-old kid he said, I want to leave a mark on the world. I don't care if it's good or bad. I said, what does that mean? I said, I, I don't care if it's, like, evil or good. I just want to be remembered. I said, well, that's a little scary. You want to tell me more about that? But, uh, yeah, he just, he he didn't care. He just wanted to be remembered. Just want to make a mark. Any mark. Any mark. Ugh. But that's that's what I encounter on a daily basis. There's there, The rise of, I remember somebody saying, when you and I were younger, if you asked most young boys what they wanted to be, it would have been like professional athletes. They say if you ask most young boys what they want to be today, they're like YouTube famous. Yep. They want to be a, a TikTok famous. They want mm -hmm. to be a social media influencer. Yeah. And I've watched kids try to do it. Like, what do you coming to terms with the idea that you're not interesting is a really th is something that most people ought to have to do in this world, right? I remember being younger, and and I don't mean I, I mean that in general, right? Most of us just aren't doing interesting things. I had a friend that was watching, uh, we were watching the Ken Burns Civil War and they were reading Abraham Lincoln's letters. And as they're reading Abraham Lincoln's letters, uh, my friend and I are talking about, why don't they save our letters, right? And like, because nobody cares what you did today. I mean, he was Abraham Lincoln, he was president of the United States during the Civil War. This was a very important man during a very important part of American history and even world history, uh, when, although the rest of the world doesn't realize it. Uh, and so... And as all that's going on, of course, everything he's saying is important. I'm like, why would you think they would save your emails? Like, what are you talking about that anyone wants to read in your emails? I went to Wendy's today. It was, you know, a lovely day or whatever they saw. It's like, you're, you just don't matter like that as far as yeah. on the world stage. But that's fine. Was it last episode, J.D., where we talked about how the world aggressively forgets you? I think we probably talked about it a couple of different times, right? Yeah, yeah, the, the, the world aggressively forgets every human being, and only a few people get remembered from generation to generation. And even your family will forget you within a few generations. You'll be a name that they may be able to recall on a ledger, but they won't know anything about you anymore. But that's normal. Right. That's just the way the world works. We live and we, we have an impact on the people immediately around us, hopefully. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we move on, and the next generation moves in, and they do their thing. But this idea that, that the world should remember me is such a strange, 
this it's, it's it's hard for me to grab. It's hard for me to understand. I guess just because I don't remember being like that. Like, yeah, it bothers me too. Yeah. For what? What what did you do that the world should remember you? That, but that's not important. All that's remember all it is important is I'm noticed, I'm watched, I'm remembered, no matter what the point is. Well so, there it's there's a in all these apps, there's definitely a reinforcing factor too. You see that like button get clicked and you're like, Yeah. Yeah. They like me. The like button. I'm, I'm handsome. I'm beautiful. There what, ac- whatever. There are academic articles written about the psychological and yeah. emotional impact of the like button. We're all rats. It changed the We're world. Reinforced. Yeah. How excited we get when somebody likes yeah. something that we've done. I, hey, I, I fall prey to it. Yeah. I see that like button. I feel good. Oh, heck yeah, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm a star. I'm a celebrity. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm a star. I got, I got 15 likes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm about to break this thing out. The king of Woodstock. So what does emotional control look like then? If the lack of emo- So what we've touched on so far is that family foundations, include mostly including identity and safety, that the lack of those things has an obvious path to despair. The lack of emotional control what, what has a, a path to despair. What does emotional control look like then? Positive emotional control. You ever get mad when you're driving? All the time. I am an angry driver. Emotional control is is deciding not to cut off the dude who just <laughs> cut you off. That's emotional control. Okay. Just not responding. Yeah, you just decide in your head, okay, it's not worth it. Yeah. I want to go to jail which, Just by to the get way, back at this yeah, if you look online, this is not. People are having trouble with this. That road yeah. rage is becoming an issue. I, I'm not making an outrageous claim here. Yeah, like people get in road rage accidents all the time. So emotional control is not giving like for like to the world, right? Being able right. to control and moderate your responses to what's going on around you. Uh, we've talked about that on this show, I think, before. The idea of um, one of the things I love the most about Jesus is that he never let the world dictate who and what he was. He decided what he was, and that the world didn't have that control over him. Um, yeah, not letting people make you crazy when they do the things that they do and being able to moderate your responses, that's emotional control. And the lack of it will lead to despair because, or feeds that out of, because we're just all over the place emotionally well if if you again back to the happiness yeah. comparison or analogy if if your whole world is i got to make myself happy to make other people around me happy and i don't really have a whole lot of foundational identity um you're going to seek dopamine to make you feel good okay and that dopamine could be attention, that dopamine could be sex, that dopamine can be alcohol or drugs. And, you know, at the end of the day, those don't make you... They're always short fixes. Yeah, those are very short fixes. Very short fixes. And and they've even shown in the brain where the more you're exposed to those dopamine signals, the more numb your brain gets to those signals anyways. So you could have all the sex in the world, all the alcohol in the world, whatever... It will organically in your brain not make you happy at the end of the day. Yeah, that wasn't. There was an interesting test on that that I read about recently, where they were talking about the idea of. They said if you give 
it was it was an experiment that was done originally when they like you were allowed to have this dopamine response or food, and these rats would take the dopamine response until they died, right? Mm. But then they put the rats in this incredibly nourishing environment and offered them, and that they never went to the dopamine. Yeah, right. Did, it was it was heroin. It was heroin. It was heroin. heroin. Okay. And they they chose not to use it when they were live like in a wild environment. Yeah, they, they put them in a nur- an environment where they were happy and nourished and taken mm-hmm. care of. And the same choice was offered to them, and that they never went to the heroin. Right. But the, but in the in just the caged environment, it was the heroin till I die. Yeah. Right. I'll I'll take heroin over food until I'm dead. Right. But then, then when they were when they took care of all their other needs that they didn't, and I thought that was a fascinating story because so and that goes back to what you're saying. Then if you're if you're if you're feeling like this, I need this to be what I need to be, and that that increasingly gets shorter. I remember one of the most, I've never, I'm, I'm, let me be clear. I've never done cocaine, right? Jay? Never. It's never happened. Neither. <laughs> and, and for the record. So I saw, I see in movies, obviously people who are addicted to cocaine, especially from the eighties. Like anything of the eighties, cause everybody was doing coke. And so I remember looking it up one time. Like, I wonder how long cocaine lasts. And then like a bump off cocaine is like 15, 30 minutes. That's it. I'm like, that seems like a crazy expensive and dangerous habit to get into for something that doesn't last very particularly long. Yeah. Uh, and so, but if you're, as you're saying, if it's, if it's what's stabilizing me and making me feel like I'm meeting the requirement of what my life's purpose is supposed to be, which is happiness, 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 I'm supposed to feel good from moment to moment. And I can't do it in any way of the way of these artificial means, then it makes more sense to me how they could get addicted to that. Yeah, you know, because they need it to get. Li- and in Georgia, you know, I know they we had the heroin triangle, right, mm-hmm. in the north uh, uh, North Atlanta area, where we had an unusual number of people overdosing, oftentimes young people, mm-hmm. uh, because of easy access to heroin, and presumably they were just not in a good place. Well, opioids are basically just heroin in pill form. Yep, and those are stronger than heroin in many cases. Yeah. So it's very easy for young people, especially to get a hold of those things and mix them with alcohol and die. And and they were, I've told my kids before, like when they get, like my daughter had surgery on her shoulder and I've had surgery in the past when, when, that's, you know, when they give you something like Oxycontin or something like that. So you take it to the moment that you don't have to take it and then you get away from it. Yeah. Because that's the, that is also a gateway for a lot of people to get into that, where, where they, that becomes their way, especially when you, have built your life around this idea that I, my identity is tied into this athleticism or this goal or this thing that I'm pursuing. And then you realize you're not going to pursue it mm-hmm. because you're just not, you're not going to get that. So their emotional control then. So we need limits. We need safety. We need emotional control. We need to be able to moderate our emotional responses to the world around us and to not be trapped in this idea that our existence is about our pleasure or our happiness. And that the loss of all of those will lead us ultimately into a place of despair. So finally, depth. I guess I think of depth in the same way of, um, now I'm going to screw this up because I can't list everything, but the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Yes, yeah. The kind of self-actualization as being like the top um, of that triangle. I feel like if, 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 your needs are taken care of as, as a young adult that, um, or as a child, that your parents have given you identity. You know where you came from. You know who you are. You know what it means to be a decent human being. 
um, and then you're you're in control of yourself. It enables you to think outside of yourself. Yeah, it enables you to have the perspective of other people. I'd like to make them happy, not just for my pleasure, but because for their own pleasure. Like I, yeah. I, I'd like them to be happy as well. You care about other people. You care about the world around you. Um, I see a lot of young people that are so consumed with my own happiness, my own goals, my own grades, whatever it is that they're just, they're consumed by self. You, you told me something a long time ago. You said that one of the things you encourage your, the people you work with, their families and the young people you work with is to give other people gifts. Oh yeah. Uh, that's a good point. Every one of the best teaching tools I have, um, it comes at Hanukkah and Christmas. Because if if I see a family and the kid is not required to give gifts to anybody else, that's a dysfunctional family. Hmm. That's a dysfunctional family. Because so, it's all about making the kid happy. So did, are they resistant to the idea of giving? I mean, how does that work when you go to them and say, you've got to start giving other people gifts? <laughs> you, you have to go give somebody. I tell that to the kids, but I also tell that to the parents, like, like you have to take him to go shopping for your wife. For okay. His, for his mom. That's crazy. And a lot of parents were like, wow, I, I never thought about that before. <laughs> well, you wonder why your kid's raging. and So that, that's part of learning to, to care. And you said something else to me a long time ago that I th- I'm wondering if this goes, because it goes to that idea of understanding life outside of your family and thinking about other people and learning who you are in the world you said that every young person, before they go to college, should have to work for somebody who doesn't love them. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, by the way, that that was a that hit deep with our family. I was like, "Get boy, go get a job." You know, <laughs> like yeah. y- y'all go out and get a job with somebody who doesn't love you. Talk about that for a second too. So I started working at twelve. I was I was working very early on. I worked at uh, I ran a like a a pizza stand at a, on the military base that I lived in. Um, we always, we always joke about my dad always jokes with me and mom too, about the fact that I told my dad that as I was graduating college, you know, some people were just weren't meant to work, which what I was trying to say was not everybody was meant to work a nine to five job that that, that prospect kind of yeah. scared me a little bit. And now I don't work a nine to five job. Um, but anyways, uh, what was ironic about that was that I was working from a way younger age than most of my peers, actually. Um, anyways, I digress. Um, especially in this community, um, with the intense focus on grades and what college you get into and what law school you could go to or what scholarship you can get for sports, I see such an intense focus on academics and sports that I see a lot of individuals that don't get a job until, well, after college. Oh. And if they don't, um, you know, get that baseball scholarship they want or, you know, get into the school they want to go to, that creates a lot of angst, depression. Yeah. Difficult stuff to deal with in a lot of the kids I work with. And, you know, if you work for somebody that doesn't love you, and what I mean by that is, you know, I don't think it's the same thing to go work at granddad's law firm. 
Yeah. Or, you know, Uncle Buck's taxidermy shop. It's just not it's just it's just not the same. Because they're gonna have different expectations for you because they love you. Or they're gonna have different expectations for you because, you know, your mom or dad is is saying, Well, you can't tell Timmy to do this type of job because yeah. it triggers his anxiety. Yeah. Or he can't be here during this period because of Right. Yeah. Because he's got all of these other extracurricular activities. Yeah. You know, when it's the manager of Kroger and he says you sweep the floor because the floor needs to be swept. Yeah. You just do that because that's your job. You're getting paid to do that. That's right. Yeah. So I think that's important for every individual, every young young kid to start working as early as possible because uh, you learn so many different social skills. Um, and by social skills, I mean interpersonal skills, but also intrapersonal skills, how to say, man, I hate sweeping this floor, but hey, I'm getting paid. I got to do it anyways. Yeah. Like I, I don't, I don't really have like a say in this matter. And <laughs> it's, I think it's a, a job. I think a lot of kids feel like they have a say in every matter, because parents let them debate whether or not they do their chores. I can't imagine how many whoopings I'd get for deciding not to do chores growing up. Yeah, it just didn't happen. And all of these, by the way, what's interesting as I'm thinking of what you're saying is. The, what we're talking about a lot today are the the ways of the foundation of the family emotional control, the, the, this kind of depth of understanding about the world around you. This is how it can go wrong when you're in a relatively, you know, what we call today privileged position, right? Where you have stability, income stability. Uh, I mean, you have the, 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 the reason you're lacking all these things in this surrounding is just because of dysfunction within the family and a misunderstanding about the roles we're supposed to be playing in each other's lives. This doesn't even touch the people who have nothing like this, right? right. Who are just growing up in a world where, where no family is there looking after them or nobody cares about what they're doing. There is no, I mean, literally no safety. My wife worked in her city, um, Atlanta, for when she was teaching in elementary school. And the stories that the young people would tell her, I mean, it's like second graders and first graders yeah. about what they would see to her. They were stunning, but they weren't telling them like, you wouldn't believe what happened. And this was so unusual. It was just, that's a Monday. Yeah. Right. And they would tell what happened. I remember going to speak at this school. Um, again, it was an inner city school and I spoke to this group and when I got done, I was talking to the guy who ran the school and we were walking down the hall and in the hallway, there were these, pictures on the wall and these these children were describing two questions what do you love about your community what do you dislike about your community or hate i don't think they use the term hate what do you like and what do you dislike and the things that they all disliked about the community were difficult for me to read because it was hard for me to think of these young people that i just talked to and these were again elementary school kids that that was their life i mean they talked about i'm never safe there's in that particular place, that, that people just leave their trash everywhere, mm-hmm. right? And 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 for these kids, that was they, you can't look at this kid and go, "Well, it's, it's your fault because you're not contributing to your community." This kid's like nine, man. He should be allowed to go home and just be a nine-year-old. Yeah. Uh, and you see, so it's interesting as I was thinking through it. We're talking about we're talking about how despair can grow out of what you would think with optimal conditions, yeah, right? People who ought to have it well. So it's easier to see how despair grows in those places where none of this is even 
you know, avail- they're, they're, all of the things that they're missing as far as family foundations, emotional control, all of that is entirely born out of this environment that they grow in where they just don't have. I just can't, I can't imagine my kids not feeling safe at home. I can't imagine them yeah. not knowing that they have parents that love them and that are looking out for them. I can't imagine them not having a world that requires from them some emotional control, some ability to talk. I mean, we still talk about this, by the way. My family and I were just sitting around talking the other night, all of us together. It was lovely. I love it when all of us are together. It doesn't happen all the time. And we were discussing the requirements of leadership. And I was saying to my son, who who hopes to be a leader in certain areas, you cannot need for the people that you lead to be okay. You, you can't, you can't require that of them, right? Mm-hmm. You, you have to lead them whoever they are and you have to be able to work with them and find ways to help them to achieve the goals that you've all set and that you're all seeking. But, but he was very frustrated with somebody. Mm-hmm. And I was like, the problem is to be a leader, particularly if you want to be a leader in ministry, you have to accept that the people that you're leading are going to be broken people and that you can't require of everybody that you're leading to be all right in order for you to do what you have to do. You have to learn to do to accomplish your goals even when there are people that are dysfunctional around you trying to subvert those goals for whatever reason they're trying to do it because they could be upset. And, and you know, it's interesting because even in the household he grew up with, I know he struggles with this idea of, they should do what they're supposed to do. And when they don't do what they're supposed to do, it's frustrating because I did what I was supposed to do mm-hmm. and they're not doing it. And then for that, when you get back to the depth of knowledge, I think for to be able to sit down with him and say, you're right, they ought to do what they're supposed to do, but you can't allow their failure to do that to do this to you. Yeah. Right? There, you. It can't be that. Right. It can't emotionally control you like that. It can't. You have to understand that you're working with people who have different backgrounds than you. They're bringing different things to this interaction that you have. And you have to be able to function your way through this to get to the goals that you guys have set without requiring of them to be what you are or perfect or whatever it is that you think that they ought to be. And that learning to think outside of yourself is such a huge part of it. I will say that I feel like most of the people that I know that I've been close to that have lost it. And when I say lost it, I meant suicide, drug addiction, the, the stuff where they've just lost it. And I, the, 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 that I've been able to talk to them before it, they could not believe that anyone else in the world was going through the things that they were going through. It's so weird. Yeah. They felt so isolated and so alone. And, and when I remember... And, and, and so deluded sometimes as well. I remember talking to a kid who was, I think he was on heroin, but he was struggling with drugs and he was living in a tent and um, on this guy's land. And if someone who I love called me and asked me if I would go talk to him. I said, why would I go talk to him? I'm not a counselor. And they said, but you've struggled in the world and you came out of it. And so maybe you can help him. And so I said, okay, that's fine. So I, I was going to talk to this guy. I called a counselor up at church and I said, if I get this guy to want, if I can, if, if he wants some help, I just need to know I have somewhere I can send him. Tell me where to send this guy. Cause I can't help him. I don't know what I'm doing. So he's sitting across the table from me and this young man's telling me, you know, he's fine. He's had 
nobody's helping him. If everybody would just understand, you know, if they, if they would just help him get out of all this, it's everybody else's fault. You know, nobody's understand what he's dealing with, but he's dealing with it. And, and he's both the same. He's trying to tell me that he's, everything's fine. He doesn't understand why I'm talking to him. And at the same time, nobody understands what he's dealing with. Right. And after he's talking about this, I remember looking at him and I'm saying, I told him, how old are you? And he said, 17. I said, You're 17 years old. This person called me. I'm a complete stranger to you, right? And he said, yeah. I said, they didn't call me because you're doing all right. I said, where are you living? He's like, a tent. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you bet. And whose yard? This guy lets me live, like, pitch my tent on the back of his property. Yeah, you know, 17-year-olds don't do that, right? 17-year-olds who are healthy and everything's going right are not living in a tent on drugs, on some dude's property, and having to go talk to a stranger in a coffee shop, right? We need to, to get back to reality in this conversation, right? You were so concerned. All, all you could talk about while he was talking to me was that nobody understood what he was going through. Nobody understood would help him. He was all alone. But at the same time, I'm fine. I don't need your help. And I was like, son, you need a lot of somebody's help. And, and we, I will take you somewhere right now to go start the process of helping because I can't be it, yeah. right? But all I'm here, as far as I can tell, is that I am the only person on earth that's going to sit across from this table from you and tell it to you straight right now because mm -hmm. it sounds like your family has just has no idea what to do with you. That's how badly everything has gone. Everyone has called in a total stranger to talk to you. In, in, in the hopes that something will get through to you. But it's so weird to me that so many people, I remember one friend who killed himself. And at the end, when, when he had a room full of people who loved him that were trying to convince him that everything was okay, he at the same time had convinced himself and was telling them, you will all abandon me. No one's going to stand by my side. He's just alone, right? I mean, this idea of having lost everything had led him to this place where he felt... Like, it was hopeless. When we talk about that despair, that idea of even in the face of people trying to help you, you become convinced that it can't work. I can't be saved. I can't be redeemed. This can't work out. This can't get better. Nothing changes. It just yeah. ends. And, and that is clearly where a lot of this stuff that we're talking about is leading people to, this lack of foundation. Go ahead. And, and the, the lack of depth also relate that to social isolationism as well. Okay. And let me explain why, because it doesn't, it's not like a one for one comparison. It doesn't sound like it would compare, but um, there's something that we used to say before the internet. And we'd say, I wonder about that. Yeah. You don't really say that anymore. There's no reason to. Like, yeah. If you, if yeah. you ask me about like LeBron James stats in 20, 2003, yeah, yeah, let's bring it up. Where is that guy from? Let's talk about it. Yeah, how old is he now? Yep. How tall is he? What does this woman look like now? How much money do we think that person has? Right. right. It's like everything. Everything. Yeah. Everything. So we don't wonder about anything. In the same way, we don't wonder about what other people are thinking because we haven't learned that skill. We used to have that skill growing up yeah. on the playgrounds. We'd wonder about things. Yeah. We'd wonder about God. We'd wonder about people. We'd, we just wonder. Yeah. We don't have a sense of wonder in our society right now. 
And when you don't wonder about how other people see things or how other people think, you're completely in your own head. Yeah. And if you're in your own head with your own perspective, you will piss people off. Oh, yeah. People will not be your friend. Yeah. It's isolating. It's very isolating. Yeah. Because you're not, and you're not thinking about them. Yeah, you don't care. Yep. Or you think you care, but it's kind of a narcissistic care. It's like, I want this feedback from you, but I don't really care. Yeah, I, I need affirmation from you. Right, exactly. That's what Carl Truman talks about in that in, in his book. He talks about the idea of what they're, they're not looking for you to communicate anything to them about their role in the world. They've decided what their role in the world is. Yeah. They need you to affirm it. Right. I heard somebody the other day as a young person that was saying, I was born to be famous. What does that even mean? Like I was, I was born to be famous. What are you, what do you, and the question to them was, what are you going to be famous for? All I know was that I was born to be famous. I was born and th- that gets like, that's an extreme version of it. But you see that idea of your, your existence is to affirm something in me. But if, if, if ultimately we're talking about despair, when we talk about people with drugs, one of the things I remember, and I've grown up with addicts. I grew up with, you know, surrounded by people in different forms of family and friends that were struggling with addiction. I had my own struggles a little bit when I was younger, but nothing like what other people have gone through. Uh, and the hardest thing for me to ever walk away from actually was cigarettes, as odd as that sounds, right? I, I was a mess when I was younger. First time I tried to, you'll like this, JD. First time I tried to quit cigarettes, uh, I knew Tracy at that point. She and I were friends, but we weren't like dating or anything, my wife. And um, I was quit for like two days. She went to the store and bought a pack of cigarettes and threw them at me. She's like, you're such a jerk right now. She's like, when you are, when you are ready to, to be a human being and quit. She's like, but you don't get to abuse the world just because you're trying to quit cigarettes. But for me, that was, that was actually the toughest thing I ever did. Everything I walked away from. Walking away from drinking all the time I was younger wasn't the big deal. Walking away from marijuana wasn't a big deal. I didn't do enough of anything else to, at least I was smart enough to have never done some of that stuff. Except I never did cocaine because I, I watched people that did cocaine. It was like, that goes wrong fast, right? That doesn't, yeah. that goes, that veers off into a bad place, right? I am reckless and stupid, but I'm not quite that <laughs> bad yet. Yeah. Uh, and so, but when you, when you deal with addicts and I did, and I have, um, that, that chasing for that leveling out, right? It's like, it's the, and that's one of the things I remember talking to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, I can't remember which one it was, and he and I were discussing alcoholism because he said, Alcoholics are oftentimes uh, self-medicated depressed, right? They're people that are struggling with depression and they're trying to even it out or they're trying mm-hmm. to, to do that. But that idea of that you're chasing that that even that moment of feeling evened out or, or everything leveling out or being happy or however they understand it, uh, it, it isolates them, right? And I remember dealing with one alcoholic and he was just a mess. Right. And, and, and I was talking to his, the person who was working with them and they said, he's not done. And they have to reach a point where they're, where it's, it's one way or the other. They call it rock bottom a lot when they're talking about alcoholics or drug abusers. They said they'll reach that place where all of their lies come to an end. Like all of the lies they've told themselves come to an end. They said they, and they will either go one way or the other when they get there, they either die or they recover. Right. And they said that that's just that place that we read that the place where all of our lies come to an end that we told ourselves. 
And that, to me, when you talk to somebody who's been there, is a lot like a depth of despair when they realize. I remember talking to a friend who got out of all of it, and he said, I was I'm laying on the ground in Savannah, Georgia, and all of my friends have left me, and I just was alone. Mm-hmm. And I realized, I got to change, or I'm going to die, right? That, that I was just, he was just following it, just following it, that, that feeling. And so it's hard for me to figure out when we start to talk about all of it, because I'm looking at the, that thing, all the, the foundations, those are the things we need, right? I mean, we need as human beings a foundation set for us. And if our family can't do it, then it obviously means our community has to do that and has to have some way of helping us find our foundations. Both are places where we can find our identity and that place where we can feel safe. Uh, we have to learn how to control ourselves emotionally. But that goes hand in hand with depth, I think, for the way you've described it, because that also recognizes that I have to be able to function with other people and to be able to work through this thing and, and to, to, to understand properly that happiness is not our goal. It's not what we're looking for because that will only lead us to greater despair, right? Because we, we, we will ultimately constantly fail that goal if we've been told that our life is about our happiness. There's just a lot to process. <laughs> yeah. Um, so quick, the, for the end of it all, now your last thoughts on how, how as Christians, as a community, as friends, as parents, we can effectively try to fight against just this sense of despair that people have around us. Solve despair. Solve That's all despair. I'm asking you to do. And I need you to do it relatively quickly. <laughs> Through this happy conversation on Halloween. Uh, well, my, my, my wife says it can do it. <laughs> um, I've just asked you to solve despair. I feel like this is pretty simple, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry, Jay. Um, I, I will, I'll be honest. It's, that's really tough. Um, for the clients that I work with that don't have this first part, that don't have the foundation of identity of who I am and what does it mean to be a decent human being. Um, and I think to go even a step further than that, as a Christian, we have this sense that the battle is already won. Yeah. So, so everything, like if you if you put Christ at the center, that everything around you is kind of like icing on the cake. Yeah. And life is hard, but yeah, it's supposed to be hard. Yep. It just, it, it colors your reality in a different way. And it, 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 it fundamentally it, it solves one of the biggest things we've talked about all day. He is more important than me. Right. I mean, in everything that I do, he is more important than me. Right. And, you know, to know that you're loved in Christ, you have purpose. You talked about that struggling with that idea of purpose. I'm not, I, you know, being a Christian, purpose is a strong thing. You know, and I've, I've talked about it on the show before. I've talked to you about it. When I had my my major episodes a couple of years ago that just, I lost control of my, I felt like I lost control of my head. I lost control of how my body was responding to things. But the what when when I went into this panic about what it meant for me and and how I was going to be able to get control back because I felt like everything everything I'd ever done in my life wasn't working 
And my brain had somehow turned against me. It was convincing me that there was something horribly wrong with me. And if I did anything at all, it triggered all these weird responses in my body. And I remember sitting there, I was pulling weeds out of the, on my front yard. Cause I figured I'd go do that. And I was thinking I got a job to do mm-hmm. and, and I got to be ready to go in two weeks. Cause I had a, two weeks I was back on the road and people have been promoting that I'm coming and I have events that I've got to live up to and require, I've got requirements I've got to meet. And I got to take care of my family. If I walk away from my job right now, my family's got nothing. And, and all of that was what got me going again. It wasn't that I felt great. It wasn't yeah. that I felt like I conquered everything. It wasn't that I understood what was happening to me. It mm-hmm. was, I don't have any choice. I got to, I got to, my life requires me to do this next thing. And so whatever's going on here, I got to learn to, I didn't get over it. I just said, I got to figure out how to do what I have to do with this new reality as a part of it. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that is an important part of, of, for me of getting over that point where I thought something new has introduced itself in my life as negative and that I don't like, and that it's upsetting, but be, but Christ gives you purpose. Christ gives you something external to yourself to look at uh, a model for me to follow. I ask myself and I ask my kids when we talk about how we respond to things, are we doing something that would please him? Is it responding in a way that is consistent with our belief in him? Are we doing something that is in line with how he would treat other human beings, right? Or in, in line with his teaching, even when it's uncomfortable to us, even when I don't like it, I have to try to find some way because he is more important than me. And that gives you an ultimate purpose that's different. I don't have to, I would never struggle with that. Like you said, if you pulled it out and you're like purpose, I have a pretty good idea about what my purpose in this world is, right? At this age, that's the one thing, that may be the only thing I have. I don't have a whole heck of a lot of money. Uh, you know, I don't have a whole lot of it, but I know purpose. I got that one. <laughs> it, it, it It's tougher for me. I think it's easier for you having a family. Yeah. It, it's, it's tough. It's, Easy for me as a reset point. So being a 42-year-old bachelor, like, in many ways, my life is about me. Yeah. And so I kind of have to, I have to rein myself back into that point of understanding the foundations of joy of Jesus, others, yourself. Yeah. I've always loved that acronym. It just, it's just so simple and it, it just, it just means something to me. And so it's, it. Yes, I understand where you're coming from for sure. Like, you don't have a choice. You got a job. Yeah. You got a family. Yep. You got a wife. You got a dog. Yep. You got a house. You got two dogs. You got and, two dogs. And they cost a lot of money. <laughs> Ridiculous how much those things eat. Right. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a it's something that, that we would have in common just in, in terms of common purpose of the way that we think. And there's a lot of... Well, you know, there's obviously a lot of non-Christians out there that don't have that. Yeah. But then there's also people that don't have that, that what we have in common in Christ, but also don't have any kind of sense of, of, of faith, of relationship to God, and then their relationship to the world around them. Um, I was uh, looking up some statistics before I came, and um, one statistic that hit me was that the attendance in places of worship, and that include, you know, synagogues, churches, and mosques, went from when I graduated high school in 1999, it was 70%. Today, it's 
either 48 or 49%. Yeah. That's a significant drop. Yeah. And, you know, all religion gives you some kind of structure or stability of how you relate to the world around you and how you relate to other yeah. people. And marriage, right? I mean, they talk about one of the things that makes the predictors of successful marriage have to do with couples who go to church weekly with each other and pray with each other mm-hmm. are, are like the marriage divorce is almost non-existent in those mm-hmm. couples uh, that, that it's, and what I was just talking to, we were talking to our kids about this the other day. I was like, you know, run understanding. My wife was saying you're playing. We're talking about you're, you're in relationships. You have boyfriends or girlfriends, but you don't understand marriage, right? Because marriage, I, you can't get out of it. That's just not how it works. And so every decision that you make, even the way you talk to each other, argue with each other, sort things out, it's all driven by this idea that the marriage is more important than the individual. So, I mean, the, the institution of marriage, I've always, I've heard people say it tames men or whatever. And so Jesus is more important than me. My marriage is more important to me. My kids are more important to me. My community ought to be more important to me than myself, right? The needs of the people around me. I mean, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, there's two things that are necessary for that to be have any meaning whatsoever, right? One of them is that I have to have a standard for how I treat myself first, right? Yep. What it means to to have identity. You said that that's that the hardest thing for you to overcome is the lack of number one, right? That identity. Mm-hmm. I know what I ought, how I would like to be treated. I know how I believe as an image bearer of God that I should be treated, and I should afford and accord the same dignity and respect that I require for me to every other person that I meet. Love your neighbors yourself is such a tremendously powerful commandment. And that's it, that's exactly what it is. It's a commandment, right? I'm commanded to love my neighbor as myself. And and the requirement then of my consideration for the world around me is is remarkably high versus the introversion that would cause me to not worry about that and to just worry about myself and to be able to wallow in in that stuff inside of me. And so it's interesting then how that dynamic changes everything. If you're not going to church, it's not a sign. People say, well, you don't have to go to church to be spiritual. Like, yeah, but if you're truly spiritual in the right way, you're going to go to church because you're going to want to be a part of your community. And it just so happens, by the way, the churches do a lot of great things. It's so fun. I hear people used to be when I worked here, uh, God, that was like 2007 to 2010, when I was development coordinator here at Cobb Pregnancy Services, now First Care Women's Clinic. And People would say to me, oh, you know, this church is, all they do is this or that. I'm like, do you have any idea? Just talking like Johnson's Ferry Baptist Church and First Baptist Church Woodstock at the time. We had Bryant Wright and Johnny Hunt, Church of the Apostles, Michael Yusuf at the time as well. So do you have any idea how millions of dollars these people are putting into the community? How All the work that's being done through these churches, the collective good that's being done, the number of people that are being helped. If those churches closed up today, do you know the devastating effect that it would have on the world. You don't see it. You drive down the road and you see the building and you get self-righteous and angry and say, I hate those church people. You have that luxury. Go talk to the charities in this community and find out what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Who's there working? Who's giving? Who's spending and volunteering their time? It's those people in that building. So properly ordered life and, and spiritual life is going to lead you into that community because I can just get a lot more done with Johnson Ferry than I can by myself. Mm-hmm. Jay Watts can't get anything done. Jay, working in cooperation with Johnson Ferry Baptist Church, we get a lot done together. We're able to do a lot more. I can help them out. They help me out, whatever, however it works. But the collective effort is just a part of a cl- – of, of, so it's, it's interesting because we get back to it, right? I mean, 
a, a right relationship with God, a right relationship with Christ is, is just happens to be the kind of thing that can help you out with despair. If you can find it, right? Because so many things in there are set, right? You are not alone. You are loved. You have purpose. You have meaning. You have a community. Uh, you have identity. You have expectations. Uh, you have the ability to be ashamed because you can now do things that are violations of those things. You should understand emotional control because now we can't just run around trying to fulfill our own needs and requirements, but we have to think about everybody around us. We have a depth of understanding about our role in this world. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's weird to say that the world just, I mean, yeah, it's, I know it's a stupid meme online, but they just need Jesus, man. What's wrong with them? They do. Yeah, get over yourself. <laughs> get, get Jesus. That's a wrap. That's a wrap, people. <laughs> we solved despair. Done. That's it. It's over. So, but th- that is, I think that's that's all incredibly helpful because we think, of, I think, before you and I sat down and talked, I think I was processing despair as this sort of dissolution of society, right? But what does the dissolution of society mean? The loss of foundation of family, the loss of emotional control, the loss of depth of understanding, the loss of empathy, the loss of the ability to think of other people beyond ourselves, poor uh, understanding about our role in this world, our goals, our emotional goals, that you know, the idea of thinking that we're supposed to be after happiness and pursuit of happiness and, and that that's our main goal. I mean, these are... I think it feels, and I say this by Greg, I'm going to give you a chance to have the last word here, but it feels to me that you have made all of this much more understandable for me because I, I think I had a grand vision of like the, what this all means. And, and you've brought it back down to very practical places. How do people find themselves in despair? They have lost everything that it means to just grow up understanding who you are and how to function in this world. Yeah. And and they just have un, their their goals are not oriented correctly. They have no proper community and no understanding of who they are in this world. And so they have nothing left but to just feel bad. Yeah. All right. Last word for you, man. I mean, it, you said it all, but uh everything in society relates to the individual and how we respond to the collective. Yeah. Who am I? And just like you said the, the greatest commandment of of treat your neighbor as yourself. How do I relate to you? Yep. This is community. Yep. And then on a grander scale, you know, how, how we treat other people that are very unlike us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that all, that all comes back to, you know, one distinction I make when I talk to kids, you know, kids hear all the time, be nice, be nice, be nice. I hate be nice. <laughs> be nice is, is very fake because people are nice. People are nice because they want some kind of something in return for being yeah. nice. They want other it's people to be nice. It's right? reciprocal. Yeah. Uh, I prefer to say be kind because being kind is an expression of who you are on the inside. Yeah. And if I can kind of tap into that with some of the kids I work with on what it means to be kind and who I am on the inside and and who I want that person to be, that can make an impact on how they relate to their world. Yep. You know what this means, Jay? It is, but it is a powerful, that is a powerful distinction. Being nice is reciprocal and it's fake. You're just nice, right? Kindness is a totally different thing. I heard this a, a description and then, then um, you know, I'm done. It, was, it was a joke one time, a, a joking description of the people between West Coast and, and East Coast people. They said West Coast people 
are nice but not kind. They said the East Coast people are kind but not nice. They said we we will be kind of irritated with you, but if you need help, we'll stop and help you. We may grumble about it the entire time, but we'll help you. They said the West Coast people they'll 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 act like they're your friend. They'll walk right over you on their way to yeah. whatever they're doing. And that was the description of somebody who said they lived on both sides of it. Getting back to that, nice is different than kind. Be kind. Have courage and be kind, like Cinderella tells us. If you have enjoyed this content, feel free to visit us at merelyhumanministries.org. I want to thank Jim Trotty for coming. I might bring him back at some future point, especially in a bigger studio, uh, and more interaction on these ideas about how we are to find ourselves in this world, to find ourselves and avoid a path of despair. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, man. thank you. It was awesome. And um, this is the end. Isn't this 10? Yeah, this is the end of season two. Season three is coming. I, I've already got something. I've got to season. I've, I've got plans. We've got plans, people. Uh, if you're still on board, hate listening. We love you. Keep hating. Keep watching. Uh, if, you're, if you're enjoying it and people are telling me, reach out to me. Feel free to contact me and let me know what you think about it. If you want to donate, go to merelyhumanministries.org and donate there. Uh, we appreciate all of our listeners and thank you so much for joining us.